Welcome, everyone, to the Funnel Radio Channel. These programs today are for November 8th, 2018. The programs are offered for you in sequence. The programs are really interesting today. One of the programs talks about sales mastery, and we hear about a sales guy who came up from the ranks and how he had to learn it all by himself and what he figured out in order to become one of the best salespeople in his company. On another program, we hear about one of the biggest issues every entrepreneur faces, which is should they take the money when it's offered to them? This particular guest says no. We hear about email campaign best practices. We hear about objection handling, a $50,000 challenge from Jeffrey Gittimer. We hear about buyer enablement. And then talk about brands in motion. Here's the program lineup for today. Daryl Prail starts off with Inside Inside Sales with his guest Brian Smith Jr. as they discuss Brian's experience pursuing sales mastery. Mark Godley follows with Data Dump and his guest is Maria Geneva who discusses the entrepreneur's most common question, should they take the money? CRM Radio, sponsored by Goldmine, continues with host Paul Peterson and his guest is Dave Caress from Constant Contact. They discuss the latest in getting the most from your email campaigns. Popular host Matt Hines of Hines Marketing on Sales Pipeline Radio has fun with Jeffrey Gettemore, the proclaimed king of sales, as they discuss, among other things, sales objection handling. Tune in to hear Jeffrey's $50,000 challenge. Rooted in Revenue host Susan Finch follows Matt as they discuss buyer enablement, which is supported by sales and marketing with guests Oren Bromberg of Modus and Alice Hyman of Alice Hyman LLC. Following Susan on WVU Marketing Communications today is Matthew Cummings, and his guest is Dan Hill as they discuss Brands in Motion. Thank you for tuning in to the Funnel Radio Channel. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Inside Sales. Brought to you by our sponsor, Vanilla Soft. With your host, Daryl Prail. Join us each week as we interview industry experts in the dramatically growing field of inside sales and sales development. Tune in as Daryl brings you actionable strategies and tactics that can immediately increase your sales and success. So you ready? Hey, Daryl. Thank you, Paul. How you doing, folks? This is Daryl Prell coming at you with another episode of Inside Inside Sales, where we get down and dirty with the industry's innovators, the ones making things happen, the ones who are pragmatic, practical, real, as they come on our show and share their expertise with you about how to be a better sales development rep. We cover lots of topics this week. Well, this week, I just love this topic. I, let me tell you a little story how this happened, folks, and, and then I'll introduce my guests. What I was doing is what I normally do, which is, was I was perusing LinkedIn, and there was a time I reached out to uh, Morgan Ingram. If you don't know Morgan, give him a shout. We've done a lot of work with Morgan. And he, he had made reference to me at one point. Listen, you've got to follow Brian Smith Jr. So based on Morgan's referral, I sought out Brian Smith Jr. I saw his post. I saw his stuff. I said, that's, that's cool connect brian morgan said we should talk boom send it out and of course you know minutes later i get the connection request and boom we're online it's great and it wasn't much long afterwards where i saw the following post shared by brian and i'm going to read it and i'm going to bring brian on the show all right so this is what brian said he said 
the biggest mistake I've made in my sales career was trying to master every aspect of selling. In my opinion, it's a recipe for disaster. Some of the best sales professionals I know capitalize on what they do best. Advice to my young sales professionals. Master an area independently. Master one area of selling at a time. I realized pretty early that I wasn't bad on the phone and I was decent at crafting emails, but where I thrived was prospecting. I had a knack for it. And I began looking at it as a science. Have self-awareness of your strengths and swing for the fences with them. What I loved about this post was I love the transparency. I love the honesty. I love how real it was and I love how valid it was. So really, the theme for today's show is don't make this mistake. And joining me today, of course, is Brian Smith Jr. Brian, how you doing, sir? Good, man. Daryl, thanks for having me on this. This is this is definitely exciting. Oh, uh, it is exciting. I mean, I'm as excited to jam about this as you are. Now, if you guys don't know Brian, Brian is a, he's an interesting cat. He's actually just made a career change. And uh, he's still, of course, doing what he always does. But now he's working as a member services executive with the AAISP. If you don't know who that is, that's the American Association of Inside Sales Professionals. His particular focus, of course, is on growing and expanding the community, as well as working with the current members and providing assistance to all their needs. So he is not only a practitioner, he is actually there advocating now for you to be better. So this this, this dude is all in. So and And best of all, Brian shared with me recently, we had some scheduling conflicts, and part of that was because he is a new first-time dad. I understand you have a baby girl named Georgia. Is that right? Yes, she's beautiful, man. I, I absolutely love her. Cannot take my eyes off her, that's for sure. Oh, that's, that's just incredible. Now, question. I know you're recording from home today. Is Georgia down the hall? Will we have a little shout-out from Georgia during this recording? You know, I, I think she's unpredictable, so we'll see. If, you, if she does, you'll definitely probably hear it. How are you enjoying the AISP? I got to ask you that. It's good, man. Um, I've been looking for an opportunity the last couple of years to give back to the sales community. I did it as a hobby outside of my day-to-day sales job. And so to be able to do it as my actual profession, it's just, it's amazing. I love sales. I've always had a knack for it. And I think if we can somehow make sales people's plan A versus their plan B, right? I think the profession will continue to grow. So it's just been great to join a team of people that have that same vision. And it is a good team of people there. I work with Bob Perkins, who founded the organization extensively. Ashley Becker is, of course, uh, runs the whole sales process there. Ashley's going to be on one of my webinars coming up shortly. Uh, if you guys haven't registered for that, it's all about sales coaching. Check it out at VanillaSoft.com. But in the meantime, uh, you talk about giving back to the community. I mean, you've been doing that already. You are the host of The Launchpad, and that's uh, an online uh, podcast about all things sales, if I'm not correct. How's that going for you? Pretty good. I started out just mainly sales and I just realized that kind of turned into podcasts with people just telling their stories of how they found success. And I've just let it run from there. It's been a great thing to do. You know, nothing more fun and exciting and endearing to get together and jam with people who are like-minded in the same industry than just sharing. And that's what we're going to do today. So again, I love the fact that you were so honest about this and and it just resonated with me. I mean, I got to ask the question, what was the catalyst for this post? That's a great question. I was actually getting ready to make the change um, to work for AISP. And, you know, I just was reflecting on my career and I'm always trying to give back. Right. So it just hit me about where I was, what I was capable of now compared to where I first started. 
And I remember times of being so frustrated because, you know, none of the cold calls were going correctly. I couldn't get the right messaging in the email out there. It just seemed like I couldn't bring the full circle in my career. Eventually it hit me that, hey, certain people are going to respond to certain things, right? So, so some people are going to respond to email best. Some people are going to respond to cold call best. Some people respond to social best, right? When I realized that when you focus on that, you realize, hey, if I just maximize one skill in one area at one time, you definitely have much more success. So walk me through the process. You had an epiphany moment where yeah. you, you realized that maybe you were trying to do all things to all people. How did you go about recognizing that that was the problem? Was it something that you figured out or did you talk to other trusted advisors in your circle? Like, like how did you zero in on, I'm not good at all these things, but I'm really good here. Honestly, when I started missing quota, I know there's a bunch of people out there that say I crush quota. I've made 114%, 115% of my quota, blah, blah, you know how it goes. When I started realizing I was missing quota and you know, I was, make, I was making all the steps that my managers were telling me to do and all the different outreaches they were giving me, I slowly realized that when I was talking to people in certain instances, man, it just wasn't happening for me. So I think in this last job at my previous company, um, the industry was completely different. The type of people and prospects I was reaching out was completely different. And that's when I realized like, okay, this is all phone compared to my first job was all emailing. <laughs> so I realized really quickly then, hey, no one is responding to my emails. Why is that? But I was having much more success on the phone. And it was because I had to practice more with the phone. I had to do more round robin. If people don't know what round robin is, it's where you do tons of uh, practice calls with your colleagues or your boss or what have you. Um, so it was when I switched jobs and I realized that I had to rely on um, a different type of message compared to my previous job. All right. So just to be devil's advocate with you. Yeah. I mean, shouldn't every sales professional work to improve all of their skill sets, not just one? Yeah. So tough question, right? So yes and no. <laughs> yes, from the aspect of you're going to have to eventually be able to utilize those skill, those skills in the long run, but not at the risk of not meeting quota or losing your job. That makes sense. <laughs> I, think, I think that makes sense. So you know, if, I, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying losing your job is bad, just so we're clear on this. Yeah, and, <laughs> and maybe let me elaborate on that. So I think we need to maximize on all those skills, but at the end of the day, companies care about revenue. They care about you hitting your quota. So if that means the success is solely phone or majority phone, 80-20 phone to emailing, you definitely better figure out the phone at that time. So that's interesting. Now, I would think the natural reaction would be to go, okay, where am I weak? So if I hear you're right, you were saying you're, you're strong on the phone. Uh, you were less successful on the email and that was affecting your quota attainment. Isn't the natural reaction is to say through some self-analysis, and we've talked about this before, folks, on, on Inside Inside Sales, you got to be honest with yourself. Doesn't that say, okay, I'm weak on email, therefore I'm going to do all that I can. I'm going to study. I'm going to A-B test. I'm going to read. I'm going to talk to my peers who are kicking it out of the park, who are rock stars in email so I can learn from them. Because it almost feels like you went the other direction. You said, okay, I recognize I'm weak here, so I'm going to go where I'm strong. I'm not, I'm not judging you. It seems to me, I guess my natural reaction would be to try to shore up where I'm weak, but I find it so intriguing that you that wasn't necessarily how you went. Yeah. So I think sales, any sales position that you're in, most of the time, the rhetoric is right now. So, hey, we need, we need deals right now. We need revenue right now. 
and that's why I mentioned earlier, if, if you're weak at email, you probably need to work on that outside of work. I wouldn't try to be maximizing and adjusting things during the work hours necessarily, right? Because again, your ultimate goal as a sales professional is to bring in revenue right now. So at the end of the day, I, I think most managers would say, whatever's working that brings in the money, do that. So while maintaining that and working on the other different things outside of that day-to-day, then you can implement that once you get a hold of that. So when you had this epiphany, did you talk to anybody in, in your circle just to say, am I off base? Am I on? Did you go to your boss and say, here's an observation? Or was this all just self-managed, just you? Yeah. So I think there's two things to that. I'm a very self-aware person. I just always have been. It's something that came to me naturally. But I am always in my inner circle, you know, guys like Morgan Ingram, another buddy of mine, Chris Fago, he's been a mentor to me since I, I moved to Atlanta. I'm always verifying with them like, hey, this is how I feel. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I've experienced. Am I crazy? And most of the time they'll say no. I think that's spot on. And then with that, obviously, I always take a note, you know, whether it's journaling for myself, hey, this is what I figured out. And then that's typically why I'll post something on LinkedIn once I went through it, experienced it, shared it to make sure I'm not crazy. I love that. All right. So what we've learned out of this first uh, half of today's episode is fundamentally, it's what we've said before. It's just be self-aware, folks. Be honest with yourself. Be introspective. Scrutinize your own successes. It's black and white. It's okay to recognize you're not going to be all things for all people. You're going to have weaknesses, just like Brian did here, because that's a sign of a true professional. And once you understand the issue, then you can fix it. And that's what we're going to talk about when we come back right after this. CRM was designed for managing relationships. Sales engagement is designed for starting them. Current stats indicate that sales reps only contact new leads about 50% of the time, make less than two attempts to contact them, and are only about 35% productive. CRM is the wrong tool to engage sales prospects. VanillaSoft is a sales engagement platform. It allows you to rapidly turn marketing qualified leads into sales qualified leads. According to user reviews, VanillaSoft will increase your pipeline and productivity by three times or more. Blow your quota out of the water. How? By ensuring each new sales lead is engaged within seconds, persistently, and with the cadence that is optimal for your prospects. Don't let your sales leads fall into a black hole. Take your lead engagement and sales qualification out of your CRM. Try VanillaSoft for free at VanillaSoft.com. All right, so we're going to talk about how to actually tackle the issue once we've recognized it. In your case, you recognize you were better at prospecting at the phone than you were at email. You recognize that your your advice to sales professionals was that they should master one area of selling at a time. How do you suggest they approach that? How did you approach it? How do you know which area to focus on first? Yeah, great question. So I think it's being aware of the industry you're in, right? So for me, my first job, I've had a couple of different jobs in sales now, but for my first job, it was targeting CEOs in the tech industry, realizing that most CEOs in the tech industry <laughs> tend to be younger people. They're not really picking up the phone. They are emailing. Uh, they're on social a lot, building a brand. And that's definitely a big thing. So when I realized that, again, having that self-awareness, that's what I figured out. Okay, let me do everything I can to figure out the emailing part. In the prospecting, right? I think prospecting, you can get it down to the science. So 
how did you go about doing that? I mean, I said that, you know, candidly, you know, like, did you set tasks for yourself? Like first I'm going to do this. Like, how did you know that you were, you were achieving what you wanted to do, that you were making forward progress? I think the amount of response. So again, with any team, you've got people around you. I just had a much higher, higher response. So the way I went about it was I measured myself amongst my teammates of the response rates they had, the amount of emails they were sending out, the type of responses they were getting. I literally built out a worksheet that had every single type of response, whether it was negative, positive, the time of response, the amount of response on each day. I recorded everything um, again because I needed the data to prove that, hey, this is the perfect steps in order to get to where you need to be with this type of outreach. So that's very interesting because so you did this almost on yourself. It wasn't a matter. You weren't relying on a piece of software to do the analysis for you per se. You were doing your own, you know, personal audit of your progress. Yeah. And I had to, you know, again, I, I started out in a startup, so <laughs> a little bit more challenging than, you know, we don't have the the funds to necessarily buy those types of resources. That's true. It's very true. And a lot of startups are exactly that way. All right. So now when you did that, did you have any pushback from your sales management? Did they want to say, hey, dude, we need you to do everything, not just one task really, really well? Like how supportive was your sales leadership or not as you went down this road? Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm going to go against the grain here and I'll probably uh, catch some flack. But I think anytime the minority, so the small instance that speaks up to say, hey, this is working better than what we're doing, I think there's always going to be pushback. Um, so definitely had some pushback at first. My first boss, she was a great sales leader. She was great at teaching how to manage phone calls. I was great at prospecting. My first job, I was not great at cold calling. So definitely got some pushback from her. How did you approach those conversations? Was there any techniques uh, techniques or tactics you can share that worked for you? Yeah, that that's always tough, right? So if you're, I got a couple of different things. If your boss is re receptive, I think you bring the data to prove it. Data always works. And if they're not receptive, I think you have to do what any good old salesperson does. The numbers have to show and you have to show it physically, right? So if there's competitions that you have with your sales team, you need to be at the top of the list. And when you are, that's when you speak up and say, hey, this is what I've been doing. And this is why we need to change this. So this is why this works. So there's two really important things you said there. One is the data. So the data shows that, you know, I may not be at the top of my game yet. I may not be winning all those competitions yet, but I am making a positive change in the right direction relative to where I've been historically. So therefore, I'm onto something and I should keep on going down this road. And that buys you some time with your manager. You can say, here's the data. The data yep. speaks for itself. But then that builds to some actual victories. I'm winning the contest. I'm hitting my quota. Uh, so even though maybe I didn't go about it the way you, you know, Mr. Manager, uh, Mr. VP wanted me to go about it. In the end, you probably only care about outcomes and results. And look at these outcomes and results I'm having. So you gave me the time. I was able to figure it out. And now look where I'm at. Both those cases, it speaks volumes, right? It, 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 it's so easy to have a conversation when you have the data. And ultimately, eventually, you have the results to back that up. So that must have made you feel substantially better about the direction you were going in once you, that started to happen for you. Absolutely. And in my career, right then and there, that taught me to, to prevent any and all subjectivity in my job. I don't want anything to be sub subjective at all. I want it all to be objective. So when I bring it, it's like, this is why. Here's the facts. It's funny. I think we all have these aha moments in our careers. Yeah. And it sounds like that was one for you, right? You finally figured it out and you go, aha, you know, and it's data, it's facts. I remember for me, I'm a marketing guy by trade. I had an uh, my first time marketing manager. I had a boss, great guy, really great guy, but gave me zero direction and would touch in with me like once a month. 
And I was so frustrated because I didn't know what to do. I was on the verge of leaving because I felt like I was just lost. And I said, screw it. And they had that aha moment, right? Screw it. I'm just going to do what I think needs to be done, uh, regardless of what he says needs to be done. And if I'm right, we'll have results. And if I'm wrong, well, I'll carry my head high as I walk out the door. And that was the best thing for my career because I did get, get the results just like you did because we knew what needed to be done and we had the data and we had the processes. And then the boss came back and rewarded me substantially. So every career is defined by that aha moment. It sounds like that's exactly what you had. With that, how would you coach other individuals who are in your shoes, other sales development reps right now who are maybe not hitting their quota to go and do an honest assessment of their strength? Is it something they just look inwardly or do they need to seek the inputs from their management, from their peers, or do they go online on the LinkedIn and say, help? Like, like, how do they figure that out if they're not sure? Yeah, that's a great question. I always believe in when it's trying to figure out self-awareness and evaluate where you are. I think you've got to, one, be honest with yourself, realize what's working, what you're doing and what's not. I think you always need to seek wise counsel. Like, so find someone that's close to you, someone that you may have access to be honest with you. I had that uh, very early on, Chris Vago was one of those guys that were very honest with me. So I think you got to do both of those in that aspect. And then, you know, self-education online, finding leaders and I don't really like this word, but thought leaders, people who are kind of pushing the agenda of what's going on with sales. I think you've got to find that. You've got to take all of that in and then find and A-B test what works for you. I love it. We always circle back to that A-B test. It's so, so true. When you think you might be honest, something an A-B test will prove it pretty fast. Now you mentioned find some thought leaders. I'm assuming you mean LinkedIn and whatnot, Twitter perhaps. You know, you mentioned uh, Vega. Are there any other thought leaders that come to mind that were influential for you? Yeah, absolutely. Probably number one is John Bar John Barrows. Definitely was a heavy influence. I mean, the guy was so real, straightforward. He kind of has the no BS, no subjectivity with sales. I think another person that truly helped me from a, even though I wasn't a manager just yet, but Trish Bertuzzi really, I feel like, gave me the thoughts of how my manager was probably thinking about my role. She was definitely another influence on me. Obviously, Morgan Inger, when I connected with him, him and I were kind of connected in a partnership. But the more I was around him, the more I'm downloading his content. He was definitely an influence in me. I'm trying to think of one more. You mentioned, well, you think of that one more. You mentioned Trish. Did you talk to Trish or just following her? Are you just reading her books? Or are you following her? Because I love what you said there. It allowed you to kind of view yourself through your boss's eyes by understanding what she was posting. That was a very unique point of view. <laughs> Long story short. So Chris Fago, which goes, again, it goes back to having those people around you to be able to keep you in check, right? Keep you honest. He gave me the book, read the book, connected with Trish online, told her I loved her book. And funny, you asked a couple of weeks ago in Boston, I actually got to meet up with Trish and just said, hey, look, I just really want to quick say thank you so much for what you have provided. It is great. Keep doing it. Keep doing what you're doing for the sales development community. Um, and I've been connected with her since. So. She's a she's a legend in the space. Um, now, which book was it? Was it the uh, the playbook? Sales development playbook. Yeah, it, it, it was a game changer. Sales development playbook. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I will give her a shout out on the on the post for this. So she will know how much of a game changer it was. And Morgan and, and uh, John Barrows, both great guys. We've had them both on our shows. They're fantastic. So you can't go wrong with that. And of course, you must have made an impression because Morgan was the one who told me to connect with you. So there you go, guys. I guess we circle back full where we began. It was all about being honest and not to make this mistake. So what's the first step? Anybody listening right now who thinks they can identify 
with you. They're in that situation. What's the first step they should do to start down this same path to get to the same end game that you did that you got to? I think first is to figure out what's not working for you. I think you take every type of skill set you're doing in sales, whether it's uh, code email, code outreach, social, you figure out what is not working for you. So you've got to be attempting to do all of them at first, right? Figure out which one is not working. And again, it's going back to writing down all that data. Okay, out of how many calls you're making, which ones are converting? How many are converting and all the emails you're sending, which ones are getting responses? And on social, is anyone involved with your posts? Are they messaging back? I think you put all that data in a spreadsheet, right? And you start from there. That's the first step. Second step, I would say, is bring it to someone who can keep you accountable. I wouldn't advise a boss necessarily just because your boss wants you working and they want you to bring in revenue right then and there. I would find a mentor, right? A Morgan Ingram, a Chris Vago, a John Barrows or whomever, and then let them know what you're doing and have them give you input, right? So you don't know what you don't know. So educate yourself on that with those mentors. And then third, I think you just got to jump in like any good salesperson, jump in deep with whatever you're committing to and do it. All right. So there you have it. Don't make this mistake. Learn from me as per Brian Smith Jr., host of the Launchpad, rock star at AISP, co-GM with the Atlanta Enterprise Sales Forum, a man who lives, breathes, and dies all for sales. He is a true practitioner and in the truest sense of the word. And I am so delighted that we had time to spend with you today, sir. If you don't follow Brian on LinkedIn or Twitter, don't hesitate. Get off your behind and do it now, just like I did, all because Morgan told me to. He is a wise, wise man. If you don't follow Morgan, you should do that too. If you haven't read Trish's book, do it. As you see, it's a bestseller for a reason. What you love about Trish's book is it's just pragmatic. It's just really down to earth, and it really just makes sense. So with that, Brian, thank you so much for your time today and for being transparent and for being honest. Daryl, absolutely, man. I appreciate this. Let's do it again. We shall do it again. In the meantime, we're out of time here, folks. I had a blast. And that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of Inside, Inside Sales. In the meantime, you take care, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening once again to another episode of Inside, Inside Sales. Hosted by Daryl Prale, the CMO of VanillaSoft. Tune in every other week for actionable ideas to increase your sales productivity. One of the many shows on the ever-growing Funnel Radio Channel. Sponsored by VanillaSoft. Welcome, everybody. Time to welcome Mark Godley, our host for Data Dump Radio today, right here on SLMA Radio. It's the one show where you can hear top B2B data vendors and buyers discuss the reality of today's data landscape. In the show, Mark will help you navigate your buying decisions and, well, help you enjoy a laugh or two along the way, hopefully. Data Dump is, of course, sponsored by Lead Genius. So 
let's start dumping some data on you right now. Welcome, Mark. Okay, thank you, Paul. Paul is our announcer today for the Data Dump Show. This is Mark Godley, our host, and I am thrilled to have Maria Graniella with us today, someone I've known for a number of years, a serial entrepreneur who runs a company called Orb Intelligence. Hey, Maria. Hi, Mark. Hi. Thank you for inviting So happy to have you with us today. And one of the reasons I'm excited to have you with us is, as I said in the intro, you are a serial entrepreneur. Unlike most of us who um, don't have enough self-confidence to start our own businesses, you have done that on many occasions. You have seen a market need. You have applied your years of academic training, including a PhD, uh, to solve a problem. You ask people to pay money for it. And I think you've done that largely without raising a lot of outside capital. Do I have that right? Yes, yes, that's correct. So, so tell us a little bit about, you know, since you have founded multiple data ventures, have there been themes that are common to the companies uh, you've been founding? Yeah, we can say so. Ten years ago, I founded a company called Twitter Times, and it was about news. So we built a service for users to build, uh, which provides personalized newspaper. And we collected news from Twitter, from Twitter API. And yeah, so I have always been working with collecting information and extracting information from social media, from web and building all kinds of product based on this. So Twitter Times was this kind of um, product where we collected data from Twitter and extracted news, and then we ranked news by popularity for particular user by importance. And uh, after that, uh, the company, Twitter Times startup, was acquired by Yandex, uh, which is a Russian web search engine. And they compete with Google in Russian-speaking countries and also in some European countries. So, yeah, in Yandex, I continued building web search engine, collecting data from web pages, all kinds of information extraction and natural language processing techniques were applied. So the common, one of the common themes I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is it seems that you have some expertise around crawling, aggregating information in the public record, probably in semi-structured or unstructured format, gleaning the useful information from that in creating mm-hmm. a structured database. Is that true? Yes, exactly. That's very well said. So the technology is exactly that. Uh, so uh, we had a lot of background, me and my co-founder and the team of engineers I'm currently working with, they all my previous colleagues from my previous startup. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so we did, we build systems for collecting data, extracting useful information and structuring data from unstructured sources. And mostly working with text, but not necessarily text in general, just unstructured data. Yeah, so, but just um, five years ago, we noticed that Salesforce is growing and Salesforce is becoming a platform and we noticed a lot of applications are being built for CRM, all kinds of predictive analytics and later account-based marketing. And uh, we realized that they all need data and this is probably what we can build. So is that Orb Intelligence? Is that the current venture? Yes, exactly. Yeah, this is my company, Orb Intelligence. Um, I have been working on it for five years now. In November, it's going to be five years. 
Am I correct that you raised little to no money uh, to get it off the ground? Yes, very little money, uh, friends and uh, mostly friends and family, uh, round of two two hundred k in the beginning, and since then we able to step. Gosh, we that's amazing! Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure it hasn't felt glorious along the way. Um, you know, of course, the other option is you raise a bunch of money from people that don't really understand your business, and then you're beholden to them. So I think the fact that you've been able to make the business self-sufficient, although it probably has not felt great along the way, gives you incredible autonomy. Yes, um, I think it really depends on the person. I think you need to choose a way for, as a founder, you just need to choose a way which you feel makes sense. Yeah. And uh, we, me and my co-founder, we always felt like we want to go step by step. And we yes. want to focus on building the product because the earlier version when we signed customers is very, very different from what we have now. I mean, we didn't pivot, but it's really improved. And we built a lot of uh, processes around it to guarantee the quality of the data, improve the frequency of how we update it and things like this. And we wanted to have our own pace in this. It is very important. It's, uh, in my opinion, it is hard. Uh, it's just more difficult when you have uh, outside investors and deadlines on when you need to raise a second round and report on your growth. So we decided to grow organically uh, on our own revenue, and uh, that just felt more predictable for us. That's awesome. So let's get into it a little bit with Orb Intelligence. So it sounds like you're providing data to sales and marketing teams. You mentioned Salesforce and Serum. Tell us specifically what Orb Intelligence does. So Orb Intelligence is a thermographic provider. We compete mainly with Dun & Bradstreet. Dun & Bradstreet? I've never heard of them. Just kidding. Just kidding. They're the ones that have been around for like 200 years, right? You know what the joke is, though? Yeah, They've been around for 200 years, but they act, they act much older than that. <laughs> yeah, it's an old school um, business and the way how this company collects the data and also sells the data, how it provides yeah. it to their customer is, uh, in my opinion, a bit old school because the uh, world changed and now a lot of buying and selling happens on the web and through yeah. a lot of software is used to connect the buyer and the seller and the data provider should also be aware of that and be kind of integrated and provide flexible APIs to be kind of integrated into all the systems. It's not just a list of contacts anymore what we have to provide. So five years ago, you get a sense that CRM is turning into a platform, that there's going to be data needs. Did you get specific uh, enough at the time to say, and there's a dominant player that is antiquated. We mm -hmm. can come in with modern methods, provide a better product at less money. What, I mean, in other words, being the foil to D&D, was that, were you aware of that at the founding of the company or did that just evolve over time? So I had a friend. Uh, who was a, who was a founder uh, at a startup called Self Predict? You probably heard of them out of it. I, uh, I was talking to your own the other day. Is that your own? Was was that uh, your own the founder or someone else? Ah, yes, your own and Kira, Kira Radinsky, yeah. his co-founders. I know them both yeah. very well. They're, they're my friends, and 
Here I actually explain, like, look, we need thermographic and we try to use tannin bracelet and it's expensive, uh, not a good quality, also just hard to use in terms of they don't provide the API that they needed. They don't have uh, web domains assigned to companies. It was, uh, we felt like um, MVP was relatively easy to build and she said, okay, if you build something, we will buy from you. So and they got you in business, yeah. Yeah, they were the, the first customer, and also they were smart enough and cool enough to understand that uh, we would certainly go and try to sell the same thing to their competitors, and they were fine with this because it's really yeah. separate what we do and what, what is their business to build a product, this predictive analytics lead scoring uh, product. And uh, yeah, this science sells predict, and then we talked just reached out to other similar vendors like Lattice Engines was one of our first customers. And also we got this kind of approval that it's useful. Yeah. And after that, we realized that we can bootstrap this business. That's amazing. Now, I want to ask you one more funding question, then then we'll probably take a break and, and we'll get more into or But, you know, sales predict is interesting that you bring up, Kira, in your own, because they were in the predictive space right as it was starting to ramp. And I think they were like the second sale. The first was flip top to LinkedIn. And then they sold that company pretty early. I think to eBay, uh, actually, or yes, if I'm yes. remembering correctly. eBay, so, yes. mm-hmm. so like they're an example of selling way early in the company life cycle, but you've chosen to remain independent. I got to believe that you've been approached about the acquisition of the company, but what is your outlook as to your future and whether or not you're going to take funding or whether or not you're open to a buyout or are you just, you're doing so well, you'd rather just keep your head down and blind yourself? Yeah, of course, we, we were approached several times um, by uh, our customers who already yeah. know us very well. And especially because we are, we have a lot of OEM relationships with our customers. Yes. It, it really makes sense from some of them to have to have the whole team internally and the product. Yeah. And but uh, yeah, but so far the business is growing and we all uh, enjoying it and it's interesting because especially last year we built very interesting partnerships with advertising platforms. I will tell about it later after the break. So I just want to see where we can get <laughs> so far. <laughs> Yeah, good for you. Good for you. Well, let's take that break because we got a lot more to talk about. So let's let's pay some bills of our own here with a commercial break, and we'll mm-hmm. be back in a minute and continue the conversation about Maria and Orb Intelligence. We'll be back in a minute. And let's try and keep it to no more than a minute because we just want to say, well, we really want to ask you a question. How well do you know your total addressable market? Really? What are the most profitable micro-segments of your audience? Who are all the decision-makers at your ideal locations? If you don't know, then you might want to listen some more here, because there's a company that can tell you, Lead Genius. Lead Genius helps business-to-business enterprise companies, such as Google, eBay, and Square, power their go-to-market strategies, and they can do the same for you. Lead Genius has the highest quality contact and account data available anywhere. How? Well, Lead Genius verifies every single data point with a unique combination of real human researchers and machine learning. Quality is assured and accuracy is 100%, guaranteed. See for yourself why enterprise marketing and sales leaders trust Lead Genius. 
Visit LeadGenius.com to learn more about your total addressable market today. It's simple. Just click on LeadGenius.com. Just like it sounds, LeadGenius.com. All right, with that, let's get back to our show. And welcome back to the second half of the Data Dump with Maria Grignella, founder, co-founder of Orb Intelligence. Maria, right before the break, you were saying you're doing some interesting things with were you saying ad tech companies? Tell me more about what, yes. what you were working on last year. Yes, and I think it's very really exciting uh, kind of new market. So uh, recently, um, there is this trend called account-based marketing. You, of course, know what it is. Uh, Litinius is also participating in this uh, a new trend. And uh, the whole point is to connect CRM management and customer management with advertising. So to connect online marketing campaigns with uh, offline campaigns for B2B. So advertising has always, uh, for a long, like, I don't know, for 15 years probably, uh, it was all about targeting consumers and kind of for B2C companies. But recently, new technologies appeared that allow to target uh, businesses. And it is when you target customers uh, who are companies, so you target uh, employees of this, uh, your potential accounts. It's very important to to understand the whole um, funnel and to link all the data from CRM uh, to marketing systems and to also to advertising companies. So what we did uh, with Orb Intelligence last year, because we built an additional data set, which is IP addresses to companies mapping. And this allowed us to onboard our data to LiveRamp so LiveRamp is a part of Axiom, and it basically allows advertisers to build audiences and to target to target the different audiences they want to buy media for. So, so, now, so is the database IP addresses matched to URL? Is that is that the database? It's an additional data set, additional to our core firmographic data set, which is a range of IP addresses mapped to ORP number, to a company profile in our firmographic database. So basically for uh, about uh, 4 million companies now from our database, we also know their IP addresses. Interesting. So I can take my advertising dollars, I can move them online, and I can do retargeting or any kind of targeted advertisements, matched IP addresses, which, which is the particular company's what you're saying is the IP address is the key, is the distinguishing data point that allows you to track a company in its electronic form. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yes, that's true. So, um, but this all happens uh, behind the scenes because our data is now onboarded onto LiveRam, and you don't need to, to think about all these details, about how all this data linkage is uh, implemented. Yeah. So basically, LiveRam connected our firmographics with cookies through IP addresses. So now, you mentioned cookies. Uh, Are you doing anything with device IDs? I'm just curious. Uh, not yet, no. All right, we should talk offline. I think, I think that's yeah. a, a future op <laughs> option for you. <laughs> yeah, we sell the data, our data there. Now it's a CPM yes. uh, model, not yeah. price per record or price per API call. It's now CPM, and yeah. we have a revenue share with LiveRamp. It's great to see you. Um, what, what I like about what you're, what you're saying, 
Maria, so many times when I talk to entrepreneurs, they're about building kind of shiny objects and cool mousetraps. What I'm hearing about the examples you're giving me is you have a very flexible skill set in your staff, in your company. And what you've done is you've asked businesses, where are you having problems? Where, where are you seeing needs in the marketplace? And so you're designing things that have immediate relevance to customers. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why you've been able to get so much revenue traction out of the gate, because you're not, you're not sitting in an ivory tower saying, well, if I build this cool mousetrap, someone will come. You're actually talking to the marketplace saying, you know, where do you have a need? If I can solve that, will you pay me money for it? Right? Yeah, exactly. This is very well said. So while bootstrapping a company, we don't have many resources to build a lot of things ahead. And that makes us really careful about next steps. So uh, and when we started, uh, we sold uh, only as an OEM. So we sold the full database with very, very simple business model to other vendors that uh, built products using uh, predictive analytics, lead scoring, and things like this. But later, uh, we added several customers who are enterprises. So we started selling to enterprises who internally built complicated uh, systems for marketing and uh, sales operations and analytics. And they required more uh, more support or kind of a little bit more professional services to work with them. And so you you can do this kind of thing only later. And later on the fourth and fifth year, we built this kind of integrations like LiveRamp and also we integrated with OpenPrice and currently building an integration with a company called Matchbook. Mm -hmm. So have you heard of of Matchbook and OpenPrice? Interesting. So in the last couple of minutes, uh, Maria, I want to get your perspective on the future. Two-part question. One, where do you see Orb Intelligence in three to five years? And two, what predictions do you have about the data space in three to five years? Mm -hmm. Uh, About Orb Intelligence, I think we will be um, growing, and I hope we will be growing and just doing the same job that we do right now, helping our customers growing organically. I, at the moment, I, I'm not sure I want to raise money, but this can change. We are hiring engineers and salespeople, and um, I, I hope these new partnerships will bring interesting new opportunities and more revenue. We will see. And about the data space. I think there will be much more consolidation, especially uh, with the fact that Dun & Bradstreet is now in quite um, unclear position after they were bought out yeah. uh, from uh, being they're not public anymore. And I think there should be some restructuring in the space and uh, a lot of acquisitions and mergers and in general, I think there is an opportunity to um, uh, move down and breast it uh, and to provide with, with this new new, um, new data vendors can now especially have an opportunity to get a little bit more market from Bradstreet. Yeah. No, I think with DNB uh, going private, that was announced in the last couple months. I think, you know, someone's going to break that behemoth up. 
And I think you're right. I mean, just their mm-hmm. sales and marketing business, I think it's a $600 million business. Um, at least that's what they report to the street. So the market is, is desperate for new players. And I think you were very wise to see an opportunity and jump into it. I'll make a prediction and we'll see um, that is along the lines of what you just talked about. I think as well, there's going to be continued consolidation. And I think Orb Intelligence is going to be bought in the next three to five years. And I know you want to remain independent, but I think your underlying IP is so valuable and your team is so impressive. Someone is going to buy you. And although you're going to, you know, even if you say you're not for sale, I think everything has its price. And um, yeah, we'll see. We'll get, you know, if you have been sold, it means, and I'll be curious as to what you do next, because I think it's going to be nothing but continued success uh, for you and the rest of your team in the future. Yeah. Uh, interesting to see. <laughs> well, it's a good prediction. Yeah. So if there's anyone listening to this, to this podcast that wants to buy you for an enormous, enormous premium, <laughs> How can they get in touch with you? Is there an email or a website or LinkedIn profile? How can people um, get additional questions answered? Yeah, sure. So um, our uh, website is orb-intelligence.com, and you can find me on LinkedIn. My my name is Maria Grineva. I am on LinkedIn as CEO and co-founder of Orb Intelligence, or by my email, maria at orb-intelligence.com. Okay, there's a dash in there, everybody, not an underscore, a dash in the middle, hyphen, if you will. Excellent. Well, Maria, this has been fascinating. Uh, Congratulations on the enormous success you've had until now. And all of us will be watching and applauding from the sidelines because the future is very bright for you and Orb Intelligence. Thank you so much for inviting. Thanks, Maria. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Paul, I'm going to send it back to you. You've been listening to another episode of Data Dump Radio right here on the SLMA radio channel. Also part of the ever-growing funnel radio channel for at-work listeners like you. Welcome, everybody, back for another episode of Customer Relationship Management Radio, CRM Radio, the voice of customer relationship management. One of the strongest voices in the field, Paul Peterson from Goldmine CRM. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. Hi, Hi Paul. We're, is is that an accurate uh, description? Are you a strong voice today here? I, I am strong. Uh, I'm a little bit inflexible these days. <laughs> I'm, I'm strong, and uh, I was I was thinking of you uh, this past week as I was reading a volume two, if you can believe that, on Sir George Martin, producer wow. for the Beatles. Wow! And all that he did, sort of behind the scenes with uh, trickery and keeping him on track. So I thought. Eh, not unlike you. So Not unlike me. Paul. And with yeah. much uh, less to work with, shall we say, in those days here. The the tricks had to be much more creative. The uh, computer didn't do it for you in those days. Yeah, it was uh, fascinating how they strung some things together. 
you know, we, we started out the, in, in, in the opening, there's always this uh, line about Goldmine being a pioneer. Right. And uh, today, uh, Dave Trest is joining us and a uh, pioneer in email marketing uh, ah. back in the day. Right, David? I guess so, yeah. Working with uh, Constant Contact, we've been uh, around for quite some time. <laughs> yeah, so I, I had been out to your uh, Burlington office somewhere early in my career. So, so welcome. In the uh, spirit of full disclosure, you know, so we're Goldmine and have a CRM product, and one of our key partners that we promote heavily is Constant Contact. So I wanted to make that clear. But at the same token, when we built the integration to Constant Contact, I think you had over 500,000 uh, businesses using Constant Contact. Now, this is a few years ago. As part of the endurance group uh, that you're now a big part of, I think you service 500 million, or, or five, excuse me, 5 million SMBs. Dave, I wondered if you could set the context on how many emails do you send out and deliver for uh, businesses every day or week or wh whatever time period? Sure. Uh, a lot. No. <laughs> so, no, but seriously, actually, one of the things I was just looking into for something that we're doing for the holidays, and we just looked into, like, how many emails do our customers actually send the period uh, from November through December, so January 1? And actually, that number last year was $18 billion just in that time period alone. So, if that's a, that's a small piece of the year, obviously, one of the most busiest with the holidays coming around, but that gives you a sense of there's lots of email being, uh, being sent out there, and that's just with our customers, right? So, in, in the past shows, we've spent a lot of time on social media, which tends to be a little, uh, I'll say, less directive. You know, email is uh, very, uh, you know, specific. So, in this day and age, what are some of the trends in email that you, at, at Constant Contact, have been watching, helping customers respond to? We know compliance, for example, but there have got to be some other trends in, in, in the way emails are sent to be effective. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, you know, yeah, beyond kind of like the, the regular compliance issues and, and things like that, I think the nice thing actually about email is that it is an opt-in channel, right? So it's a permission-based channel and people are actually giving you permission to market to them, which, which makes it, you know, work a lot better for for customers and people doing email, which is great. But besides those compliance issues, it's really about this idea of automation and personalization these days. And that's where we've really been focused is how can we make it easier for people to get the right messages to the right people at the right times? And how can we do that in a way that's obviously easy for people to kind of wrap their heads around and do and still feel personal and just really get timely and relevant information out to people is where we're really focused. Yeah. So I was going to say, what's the most uh, critical factor in getting your email opened? Most critical factor in getting your email opened, I would say, is, uh, well, two things, right? The first thing is people open emails from people that they recognize, right? And so that's kind of when you think about, you know, you wake up in the morning and you take your phone and you see what emails you got. The first thing you kind of do is process, all right, who's sending me this, right? So that's the first thing. And so you always want to make sure that when you're sending email to people, and in our case, we're talking about customers and things like that, you want to make sure that you're using a recognizable from name. So whether that's the name of your business or somebody in your business, you always want to make sure that that's somebody that they're going to know, right? Because that's the first thing that they're processing. And other than that, it's really about relevancy, right? It, you need to make sure that you're sending relevant information to people. A lot of that is set up in the expectations you set for people in the outset. So when they're first signing up for your list, when you're always making sure that they know they're signing up for it, right? You're not just adding people without their permission. When they're actually getting set up, you're, you're setting some expectations, right? So you're saying, these are the types of things that we're going to send you. This is kind of the frequency that you can expect. 
or if you're going to send to them more than you normally would, you, you kind of set those expectations and let people know so they can make those decisions and have some control over that, right? I think the other nice piece about using uh, an email marketing provider like Constant Contact 2 is that obviously you give people that permission where they're in control because they can unsubscribe at any time or update their preferences and do those types of things. But I would say that's beyond just knowing and recognizing who it's from is the information that they're going to get from you relevant. And I think that's the key thing. One of the things that we've found is sort of in creating content like a white paper, for example, what we found is as long as the content is is good and valuable, it's actually the title of the white paper that gets the attention, right? So with email, any tips on drafting good subject lines? So apart from, you know, (laughs) this is somebody I recognize and trust, subject lines have a big impact on whether your email gets read or not, don't, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the, that's good, right? We go through that. If we keep going beyond that, right? So at first they're looking at who it's from. Then they're looking at, okay, what's that subject line? And is that subject line relevant to me? And then we also have what we'd call like that second subject line, that pre-header text that in some devices or some clients that you're looking in your email, you kind of see that little bit more text that kind of shows you what's inside the email. And so you kind of use those three things together, right? Or And the subject line and that pre-header together work as a unit. And so, yeah, some tips would be base level, right? just tell me what's in the email. <laughs> so that way I'm not, you know, you don't want to try to trick me or do anything like that. Just let me know what's in there so I can make a decision on whether or not, oh, that's something I'm interested in. I want to read that, right? And you can use that with the pre-header text to kind of tease a little bit more about what they're going to get in there. So other things to kind of think about with subject lines is that you have to keep it short, four to seven words, eye-catching. You can kind of think of it like uh, like taglines almost sometimes, right? Like, you know, Lord of the Rings, one ring to rule them all. Like, you know, Great emails can kind of do the same thing. They can give you a subject line that piques your interest and then a little tagline to give you like a little bit more to like want to get you in there. You can ask questions of people. You can actually add some personalization to the subject lines. We actually see that helps increase some open rates as well. As well as using things like emojis today, right? You know, they sound kind of kitschy and you don't want to use them all the time. But if you use them at the right moments, they actually help your email stand out in the inbox. Obviously, the thing people love hearing most is their own name, right? So... <laughs> Sure. Can actually, if you use them the right way, can actually get people to open more of your emails. We found that some of the best, when we did a little bit of A-B testing, we mm-hmm. found that the email subject lines that got the most opens typically had a number in it. Save 15% or the three steps to this or something like that. Do you, do you have any experience that would, would validate that or was it just anecdotal? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's the same thing, right? You know, I, I look at as a content person, right? Like I think of subject lines a lot like headlines, right? And yeah, whenever you can have a number in there, there's things to the enormity of the number, but then they kind of pique the reader's curiosity, right? Because if you say three things and if it's something that they know about, they want to know, all right, are the, the three things that I'm thinking of, right? So there's some curiosity there. Or if it's four things and you only know a few of them, you're like, well, what's that fourth thing? And so, yeah, numbers for sure can actually play really well in subject lines. You hit on the other in talking about emojis a little bit. How do you feel or recommend the use of graphics versus text? I always worry about graphics getting stopped at a, a spam filter or, or, or whatnot, but do you have any thoughts on how the uh, industry is responding to, obviously, a, a graphical email will look more appealing, but does it also prevent 
people from seeing it? Yeah, so I think it, what it boils down to is really kind of using them both, right, in the ways that make sense for your business. And I think one of the things we would never recommend is don't use a full image as your whole email, right? You're really using an image to be supportive of what you're trying to say in the email or the message that you're trying to get across. And so that way, if you do run into a situation where somebody isn't rendering images or something like that, that they're not going to miss the whole message, right? They're just missing the piece of the, the image itself, right, but not the actual message with the text in there. So it's about using those two together. The other thing to think about is, is because sometimes those images don't load is make sure that you're using some good alt text on those images. So that way, if the image doesn't fire, they'll actually see what that alt text is. So you can explain what that image is or do something like that. That kind of gives people a sense of what's there, what they might potentially be missing, right? But I think it's a combination, right? It's like you're using that image, to, like I mentioned, to support the message in a way, like show them the good stuff. So if you're like promoting an event or something like that, show people having a good time at the event last year, you know, do something like that or, you know, if it's a new product, really have a good, you know, sexy photo of your product, that type of thing. But use it as a supportive element because a lot of times the image, when they do have them on, can draw people into reading the email just because our minds process images much quicker than we process text. The other element that you mentioned was to set expectations, but it's also creating a little bit of anticipation. Hey, your next email will arrive in 30 days. Christmas starts up. I'm going to get hundreds of emails from William Sonoma and Macy's and <laughs> yep. I can't sort through them all because there's nothing unique in them that it seems like it's yep. overload but any thoughts on frequency to customers versus prospects any any differences? Yeah, let me talk through that. So that's obviously like the big question we get all the time is like, what's the right frequency, right? And I always kind of come at these from a, a small business lens, right? And so I think of that more than a big box store. And I think the advantages that a small business typically has is that they're a lot closer to their customers. They know them personally and those types of things. And so those relationships are a lot different from a big box store that you would have, right? And they're just kind of going to bombard you with messages, right? But I think really does come down to setting expectations and letting people know what you're going to do. The example I kind of give, if you sign up for an email list and the person says, I'm going to email you a tip every day, the expectation from the person signing up to that list is that you're going to get an, they're going to get an email every day from you. Whereas another business, that might be the wrong frequency dependent on that type of business, right? And so it's what you kind of set up. And as you mentioned over the holidays, the frequency, you should expect to see that more. In general sense, what we typically recommend that people try to do is think about if they're sending something that has some type of time sensitivity to it, is try to figure out a way that you can maybe send a series of, of three emails, right? And we typically say, send an announcement like two weeks out from the expiration date or whenever the date of the event is. Send an, a reminder kind of the week before. And then a couple of days beforehand, send your kind of last chance email. And the reason we say that is because typically people aren't thinking about our businesses as much as we're thinking about our businesses. And, you know, example I always give is a buddy of mine owns a cheese shop and he does these events and he actually holds a cheese parade every year for a 400 pound wheel of cheese, which is pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> he has these great events with like craft ciders and things like that. And one time, you know, he sent out, hey, come to this event. And I was like, oh, I definitely want to do this with my wife. I want to go to this thing. And then I had to go drop my kids off at school. And then I just totally forgot about it. But it was something that I wanted to do and I just didn't get back to it. 
So then I got that reminder email that I was like, oh, yeah, that's the thing I want to do. I got to remember to do that. And then I got pulled into a meeting at work, you know, and so like I just right. get pulled out in different things. You don't get a chance to take that action. But when I got that last chance email from him, that was the good kick in the butt for me to say, oh, you know, I got to do this thing. <laughs> right. So that was like the really like kind of do it now if I'm going to do this thing. And so that's why we kind of recommend you think about not just sending one email, but looking at how you can send multiples. And if you're going to increase your frequency, there's nothing wrong with sending an email saying like, hey, you may see a few more emails from me during this period and people will be cool with that. We're talking with Dave Trust of Constant Contact, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit about pitfalls after this break from our sponsor, which happens to be me. We know you rely on your CRM system, and it's usually a love-hate relationship. Most CRM systems, well, let's face it, they're expensive. They're hard to understand. People don't use them properly. And you're probably paying for features that you don't even want. If that's your case, then maybe it's time to simplify. It's time to get more from your CRM. Why don't you go back to the original? Trust Goldmine. We help pioneer the industry after all. Goldmine CRM is, well, it's simple, it's affordable, and it's proven. If all those sound appealing to you, if you're just tired of the CRM headaches that you're getting from trying to implement something that's just too complicated, too expensive, and too much for you to figure out, then why not go back to the original? Visit Goldmine today, goldmine.com. All right, let's head back to our conversation for a goldmine of wonderful nuggets. Well, David, uh, we're talking with David Trust of Constant Contact, and we, we got through some some great tips on best practices. And uh, one, one last one I wanted to ask about was within the structure of the email. So you talk about sending three. So obviously the third one that you send is a quick reminder, right? They've already seen one or two of the previous ones. How much information can you put into an email? I mean, any guidelines there on, on what you include? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we actually did some analysis a couple of years ago, and we looked at the number of lines of text that need to be in there for the best type of engagement in terms of, like, opens and click-throughs. And we saw, we recommend usually around 20 lines of text in there. And that gives you a sense of just, like, you don't have to do a whole lot, right? We typically talk about this idea of picture, paragraph, and call to action. That'll be the, the basic things that you need in an email to kind of get somebody to take an action. And, and we look at it in terms of just answering three questions for somebody when they open that email. And so if you think about what are you offering? That kind of becomes the headline of your email. Here's what we're offering for you today. And then if you answer the question, how is this going to help the reader? That becomes like the body copy of your email. And then if you answer, what should they do next? That becomes that call to action or the button or the thing that you want them to do after they open the email. And if you can answer those three questions and you do that as succinctly as possible, that's really all you need. Obviously, you know, you have different purposes for sending different types of emails, but at the base level, if you can do those three things and answer those three questions, you're going to have a pretty powerful email that is pretty persuasive of getting people to click through and take that action that you want them to take. Sometimes emails are important in driving web traffic, and you can either drive it to your homepage so that the user can then start to browse around, or you can push them to a specific landing page where, as you were pointing out, you got 20 lines of text. It's kind of a teaser, right? You want to get some value in that, but maybe you've got a landing page that's got a little bit more detail. Any thoughts on which is more effective or is either uh, fine? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you always want to be driving people to the specific place or the specific landing page that you're talking about in your email. You never want to leave it up to somebody to kind of find where they're supposed to be going because every time you have to kind of take them to some place they're not expecting to go, you're going to lose somebody, right? And so right. if you're saying, go to our website to see these deals, 
I should land on the page that has the deals on it. Or if I'm talking about something specific, I should go to the page that has that specific thing that you're talking about. And that's all just about helping somebody. You don't want to create disconnects with the people kind of engaging or the experience for somebody, right? And so I click something, I'm expecting to go someplace. If I don't show up there, I'm like, ugh, where am I? And then I get frustrated and I leave. And so you're just limiting yourself in terms of people actually converting and doing the thing that you want them to do. And I know constant contact can work. I'll call it standalone, right? Users can upload their list to probably in a spreadsheet. If you have a CRM, one of the, the strengths, right, is you, you talked about relevance. Do you agree that segmenting your list helps increase relevance? So you, you send a fewer people, but uh, you've got a narrower focus now for your message. Absolutely. I mean, that's the big thing, right? The big thing we talk about all the time is, is this idea of, of of segmenting, right? And and doing that because people have, even though they may be interested in your business as a whole, they still have different interests in that. And they may be at a different particular place in time and when they might interact and engage with your business, right? And so it's really important to start to think about, you know, at a base level, you know, if you're a nonprofit, do you have, you know, donors? Do you have uh, volunteers? If you're a business, do you have people that are prospects or do you have people that are customers, right? One of the things that we've been working on, you know, we talked about this idea of automation and things that we've been working on to make more, you know, simpler for small businesses to take advantage of. We actually have a tool called click segmentation. So you can actually send out an email with a particular link and say, do you want to learn more about this thing? And when they click on that link, what happens is that allows the, the user to self-segment themselves. And so that adds them in a list that you created on the back end. And then you can just send those people that click that link. You can use some automation to send them follow-up messages about that particular thing. And that way you're getting people that are, you know, you're sending to a broad group and you're only getting the people that are really interested those are the only people you're sending follow-up messages to, and, and you're going to see much better results from that instead of just blasting people everything the same, right? Right. And, you know, so, for example, in our world at, at, at Goldmine, there are people who are potential purchasers of the product, and then there are others who are, I'll we'll call them influencers or consultants or researchers who may not buy the product themselves but want the information. And I've always struggled with, we'd love to separate them so that we know who we can focus salespeople on a little bit. And those influencers, though, are important because they help keep the brand going. And But from a list segmentation standpoint, we like to send it a little differently. There are three groups. For a prospect, you're, you're trying to entice them to take a closer look at your product or service. There are some people who aren't ready to buy now, so you're on your nurture marketing campaign. And uh, I've always called them future prospects. So it's sort of hey, you've, you've bit the apple once or you visited our site, now we're going to trickle some information to you. And then for customers, there's a different method. You don't want to send them sales-based messages. Uh, typically, you want to maybe, I've always encouraged people to say, send a message that relates to how people are using your product or services, more a little bit more detail so that the customer learns something about the product or service that they're buying from you. And the other point that many small businesses don't realize is that when you take an order from somebody, the person who places the order or pays the bill may not be the person you want to sell to a market or who makes the decision. So having a CRM and a separate list of you know, finance purchasing contacts. So those are some segmentations that, that we've looked at. And then, of course, you'd mentioned donors or other side. Any other tips for segmenting? Yeah, I mean, I think you you hit on those really well. I, you know, I think it's just it depends on the nature of your business, of course, is going to, you know, allow you to get a segmented that you need to get. But you can also just think of, of things in terms of like preferences 
purchase behavior like you mentioned? Are there different products that they have purchased or haven't purchased? Where are they located, right? Maybe they're located in different parts of the country depending on what the nature of your business is. And that might be something that would have a reason for you to segment and those types of things. But I, I love the way you laid that out in terms of like prospects, customers, and you know, sending customers information on how to use the product or get the most out of it. And then maybe then it's once they get that going and you're successful with that, it's like, here's the next thing you might be interested in, right? And so it just really changes when you start to think about that, just, you know, who you're talking to. Goldman, I always put my name at the bottom of the email, sort of the buck stops yep. here sort of thing. Uh, some places yeah. don't, but the, in our case, if uh, somebody has an issue, they know who to reach. I try to personalize, sometimes a little quirky, and my marketing team tends to edit that out. We talked a lot of success factors, and I think that's going to be the most important yep. takeaways. But are there any things to really avoid that, uh, you know, I'll call it missteps or common common uh, you know, failures that you've seen over the years? Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, one major one is don't try to be tricky, right? Like don't try to deceive people with like your subject lines or getting people to open or, you know, you don't want to hype up things too much, that type of thing. But aside from that, typically we see people who don't, they don't plan for success, right? If they just kind of go into email saying, all right, I'm going to do email. And then, you know, a month or two goes by and they haven't sent another email after the first one, right? So you really kind of got to go in with a plan. You got to come with that. You also... Pitfalls would be designing, not for today's audiences. What I mean by that is, you know, we're kind of past those days when you would take a paper newsletter and then transfer that into a digital format. You really need to think about mobile devices and how people are consuming information these days. So you got to really design for today's audiences if you want to be successful. Also, a lot of times people will send emails, but they don't have any real purpose behind the email. And so they're really not creating an email that drives action and gets somebody to do something. The other piece is I think sometimes people get seduced by the vanity metrics where they're not measuring at all. And and so really, you want to go beyond the opens and clicks and try to get to the business impact that uh, email marketing is having for you. And then the other piece is sometimes they're not always putting any importance on continually growing that list and getting more contacts in. And, and I would say that's a misstep because obviously the more people you have on that list, the more opportunity you have to influence somebody to do business with. Yeah, them, we, I think if somebody has product interest, we have a long form because we'd like to engage. But if you just visit our site, you can sign up for a newsletter and then we try to keep mm -hmm. you posted of a webinar or other material. But trying to build the names. One of the other things we do, uh, the stats that you provide on a campaign, we get who opened it, uh, bounce backs, and who didn't open it. And so one of the things that we've done is recommend creating a little filter and maybe sending a second message, slightly different yeah. subject line to people who didn't open the first go round. And so you can kind of yeah. uh, keep it. If somebody wanted to sign up for Constant Contact, and by the way, you can do that if you own Goldmine, you can sign up within the product. But if you sign up outside and use Constant Contact uh, standalone, uh, you can always use that account with us. Where's the best place uh, for people to go to get more information about Constant Contact? Uh, Absolutely. That's uh, constantcontact.com. Pretty simple there for you. <laughs> Pretty easy. So, Dave, thanks very much for joining us. We've got some great tidbits, which I'd like to reduce to a blog, and uh, we appreciate you joining us today. We covered some best practices on how to build effective emails in the marketplace. And, Paul, while it's 35 degrees, surf is up. You've been listening to another episode of CRM Radio Today, bi-weekly program here on the Funnel Radio Channel for at-work listeners like you. Brought to you by the good folks at Goldmine CRM. Welcome.
back, everybody. Time to grab your board and paddle out into the sea of ideas. See if we can catch that sales pipeline curling up over the horizon with our, our key surf master, Matt Hines. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Sales Pipeline. Thanks so much for joining us again. If you're joining us live on the Funnel Media Radio Network, thanks so much for everyone joining us during the workday. We are here every week, Thursday at 1130 Pacific, 230 Eastern. If you're joining us on the podcast, thanks so much for joining us. I think we're up over 40,000 subscribers now on the podcast. So very excited to have all of you joining us and very humbled by all of you that are joining us on a regular basis. And every episode of Sales Pipeline Radio, past, present, and future is always available at salespipelineradio.com. Each week, we are featuring some of the best and brightest minds in sales and marketing. Today is absolutely no different. I am I am beyond excited and humbled to have joining us today, Jeffrey Gittimer. He is the king of sales. Uh, if you're in sales, it is, he is a household name. He literally wrote The Little Red Book of Selling and has published a number of different books and is the author of the recently published, in fact, published last week, came out, Truthful Living, The First Writings of Napoleon Hill. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a doggone pleasure. If you want some humor, you could say we've kept the best minds of sales ever. We couldn't find any of them today, so we have Jeffrey Gittimer on the show. Self-deprecating, as always. Yeah, I love (laughs) self-deprecating. I must also say, now that I know you're from Seattle, should we ever get together, we would go to Anthony's Pier 66 down in the uh, harbor, and we could fight over the check, and you could win. (laughs) <laughs> I'd be happy to. The next time you're here, we'll definitely check that out. I mean, what's amazing is there are, you know, you go down by the waterfront and there are yeah. a ton of seafood restaurants, right? And and most of them are tourist seafood restaurants that any right. local would never bother to go into because it's fish for twice the price and it was caught like six weeks ago. But Anthony's is one of those retreats where it really is very good food, very fresh, very good. Not right on the waterfront, it's definitely a, a, a gem. Yeah, I'm downstairs, and I ordered the biggest lunch in this crab they have. And it's how big is that usually? A couple pounds. Okay, that's still pretty good size. Yeah, it's good size. And you know, the, they have a huge one. But my other tip for you, and for anyone coming to Seattle, you know, you want to go and you want to watch them throw the fish, right? So you go to Pike's Market and that little spot where they throw the fish, and it actually is very, very fun. And that's all, it's all fresh fish. I mean, that stuff was all, like, you know, alive the yeah. day before kind of thing. But if you're looking however, at the fish, however, go down to, as you're looking at the fish group, go to the right, down the down the market, and the first fish place you come to on the left has better, cheaper fish. I was just going to say, like, you turn 45 degrees to your right, and there are two or three fish places there. They aren't nearly as busy, yeah. but that's where the locals go. Same fish, exactly. the price. Just got to know where you're going. Speaking of where we're going, I want to begin the best upsell lesson I ever got, and it was at that place market. Okay. I'm walking through the market, and it was the summertime, and I said, I'm going to get some Rainier cherries and eat while we're walking around. So I go to this lady's. She, all she has is fruit. And I said, give me like a half a pound of, of Rainier cherries. And she puts them into a bag and weighs them, but the bag was kind of oversized. Mm-hmm. And she shows them to me and says, are you sure that's enough? And I said, ah, all right, give me a pound. Give me a pound. And she does the same damn thing. She looks at it, and then she looks at me and shows me the bag. And she goes, are you sure that's enough? I said, all right, give me two pounds. So she gets me from a half a pound to two pounds, right? And I'm walking down the aisle, and I thought, I wonder if she does that to everybody. So I run back to the booth, and I go, tell me about the deal here that you just did on me, do you do that to everybody? She goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> everybody who comes to that place gets, are you sure that's enough? How simple could that upsell be? Are you sure that's enough? Five words. And with that, she got a $4 sale to a 
$16 there. So now tell me that. You understand the difference between doing that and then if you go to a bar and they say, you know, kind of make it a double for a dollar more. I think there's a psychological difference between the two. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, because this woman is actively involved. She's showing you what you bought. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a sideshow to the way <laughs> she did it. I was so impressed I wrote about it, and I used that as a lesson in upselling that most salespeople don't upsell enough. They have no concept of asking for more. My father taught me the philosophy in 1974 of upselling. He said, son, when their wallet's open, empty it. Oh, cool, Pop. Okay, well, there's a that. psychological difference between saying, would you like more, and is are you sure that's enough? Oh, without a doubt. Very different. Yep. She's challenging me to think of the answer myself. When you go to a 7-Eleven, the guy says, is there anything else? Like, no, there's nothing else. I want a house and a car. <laughs> you know, right. but if he said, are, did you get a Popsicle? Did you get a candy bar? Did you get a bottle of water? At least the suggestion would make me think about, is there something else? Is part of that based on the fact that when you're ordering the chariot, you don't actually know how much is enough. You don't actually know how hungry am I, how much is a half a pound. Yeah. And I thought half a pound pound there to around. I'm just walking around the market. A half a pound should do it. Yeah. But she put it in an oversized bag. That's the key. <laughs> it looked like there was n- nothing freaking in there. So the challenge that you have is, as a salesperson, is your language conducive to buying? Not mm-hmm. selling. Is your language conducive to buying? When she said, are you sure that's enough? That made me give the answer. Because she could have said, this doesn't look like enough. You need more. Right. Right. Going, no, that's enough. I, I got enough. I got yeah. what I need. You know, it's funny. I, I actually wrote about that this morning on LinkedIn. So, you know, we got a lot of comp- companies as we're recording this. It's the beginning of November. Companies are, believe it or not, starting to think about New Year and sales kickoff. Oh, yeah. One of my pet peeves of sales kickoffs is the content usually focuses on the product you want to sell, and the sales process you want to follow. And very little time is devoted to the customer, like how they buy, like how they think, what their psychology is. I mean, don't ask them what keeps them up at night. Tell them what should be keeping them up at night and see where that goes. It's a different way. Or at least show them what the opportunity is, just in case they are. And what keeps me up at night is none of your business. (laughs) Right. And suppose I answered wild sex, what would you say then? Well, that's why you don't want to leave those open-ended questions that can take you way far away from where you want to go. (laughs) Bingo. But And it's a manipulative question anyway. It's true. I don't like that question. What it shows me is you've done no research on me and you're fishing. Right. I don't like fish questions. I don't like Miss America questions. I want something that's pointed. I was looking at your website yesterday, and there's a couple of things I don't quite understand. I was wondering if you could help me. Mm-hmm. Sure, I can help you. I'm an expert at my website. Right. And that's where I need to go other than what, what keeps you up at night. It's a bullshit question. We are blessed anyway, today to have with us the king of sales, Jeffrey Gittimer, who if you've been in sales, hell, if you've been in marketing, you know this guy. You've read, you read his books. It's sitting on your shelf somewhere. And Jeffrey, I do want to make sure we spend time talking about the new book as well, Fruitful Living, the first writings in Napoleon Hills just published. We were talking before we started recording about Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich, which I read a long time ago. I should probably go back and read it again. There are certain fundamental books that aren't really about sales and about marketing, but just help you be a better person, help you have a better outlook on life. And for me, Think and Grow Rich was one of those. Talk a little bit about it sounds like that book was impactful for you in your life and career as well. It was. In 1972, when I read Think and Grow Rich, I was with a bunch of other sales guys, and we did a, a four-hour morning training every morning for a year. And in that morning training, each person did a book report 
on one of the chapters from Think and Grow Rich. And there's only 15 chapters in the book, so we were going through the book every three weeks. That year allowed me to do it 10 times how many times I actually read the book. And that gave me my positive attitude. Well, fast forward several decades, and I became friendly with the guy that runs the Napoleon Hill Institute. And I said, hey, let me give something back to you guys. I'll, I'll do your weekly email newsletter on one condition. The guy goes, what's that? I said, did you never pay me a nickel? And he goes, uh, okay. <laughs> now, how do you say no to that? So I've been doing that for 15 years. And a couple of years ago, they found the original writings of Napoleon Hill 20 years before Think and Grow Rich. It was hidden in a course called Truthful Advertising, where Napoleon Hill was teaching kids how to sell ads. And after each one of the sales lessons, he wrote an After the Hill lesson with Mr. Hill, and he wrote it on positive attitude and personal development, and that was the foundation for writing Think and Grow Rich. So I wow. discarded or I edited out all the sales stuff, and I kept in all the personal development stuff, and that's what created Truthful Living. That's and it's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Oh, it's totally amazing. Chapter one, just as an example, he starts out and says, success is up to you. Oh, yeah, you're right. And chapter two is finish what you start. And chapter three is how to think. And chapter four is imagination. I mean, these are fundamental pieces, but there's a secret inside of them, and I'm going to share with you what the secret is. He takes four or five different words and puts them together, and the secret is making certain that you use them all in conjunction with one another, not just by themselves. Mm -hmm. So, for example, he says, imagination, desire, enthusiasm, Self-confidence and concentration are the five most important words in the English language. Now, think about that. He's not saying imagination by itself, because if you have imagination and you have no desire or you have no self-confidence, you're going to keep it to yourself. And then the glue in the five words is concentration, focus. Think about concentration. This was written in 1917. There were no paved roads. There was no, there was no anything. A phone was like a rare commodity, and you had to go through an operator to make a phone call. There was no television. It was hardly a radio. Think about what there were no distractions, and yet Hill understood that concentration was the most important element in keeping your single purpose together. Today. Your phone dings more than it rings. You get notifications that your old high school boyfriend got fat, or you get notifications that you got a text or an email. It disrupts you. It takes you off your course. This is about how to find your focus, how to have your chief goal, how to maintain self-confidence, desire, enthusiasm, and imagination. And there are 23 other lessons in this book that will do exactly the same thing. It's it's an unbelievable book. We do a lot of work with inside sales teams, helping them mm -hmm. improve efficiency and effectiveness. The underpinning of a lot of it is process and discipline to be able to mm -hmm. stay focused. And someone asked me the other day, like, you know, how do you build a process that's going to really sort of drive predictability and ensure that that's happening across the sales team? And, I, and my answer was, like, I can't. Unless I actually have robots doing this work, the people doing the work have to dedicate themselves to that purposeful work. They have to dedicate themselves to the concentration and focus to get this work done. I, I would imagine I there's a lot more people that, that believe in this, that listen to this and would nod, nod and say, yeah, that all makes sense, but will go back to the dings and the pings of their phone and, and, and ping pong across fire drills all day. Exactly. If your attitude sucks, you can't do a job right, and you're not going to even learn anything because you're going to close your mind to it. Yeah. And Hill is just saying, hey, dude, open up your mind, recognize that it's up to you. 
recognize that shit's going to happen to you that's not good, but those are blessings in disguise. And if you just finish what you start, you're going to win. Most people don't finish what they start. Most people quit way before it's time to quit because they either needed the money or they had a, got fired from their job or quit their job or whatever it was that they did. They stopped doing what was leading them to success before they got there. Unbelievable to me. And it seems so, to me that this, I mean, before you publish this book, I mean, I look at some of the stuff you published in the past, including your little gold book of Yes Attitude. I mean, clearly this, mm -hmm. this, uh, this approach has been with you for a long time. Oh, yeah. I recognize that you cannot be a great salesperson until you become a great person. Like that, the, those are the benchmarks. You can't become a great dad until you become a great person or a great mom until you become a great person or a great secretary until you become a great person. Whatever it is that you're looking to do, you have to be a person before you become an it. And attitude and belief are, are some of the fundamentals in that process. It, very few sales courses teach you about self-confidence. Right. They're trying to teach you some technique that pisses other people off. Find the pain. Yeah. What's your pain? The answer is none of your business. Mm -hmm. So stop trying to extract things out of me. Why don't you try to find the pleasure? Because if we both like Dungeness Crabs or we both eat at Anthony's Pier 66, immediately we know a lot about one another. Right? And we're willing to talk about it even more. We're going to have to take a quick break here, pay some bills. We'll be right back more with Jeffrey Gittimer, the author of the new book, Truthful Living, the first writings of Napoleon Hill. We'll talk more about the book, talk about his podcast, talk a little bit more to, where to eat when you're coming to Seattle. We'll be right back with Sales Pipeline Radio. Are you tired of sending emails and wondering if they're ever even opened? If so, you need MailTag. MailTag's a Chrome browser extension for your Gmail that allows you to track your emails in real time. You receive alerts right on your desktop right away as soon as your emails are read. And as a special thank you for being a listener to this show, we've teamed up with MailTag to provide you guys with a special discount. If you simply use the word Heinz in their promo codes, you can get 50% off for life. That's right, Heinz, H-E-I-N-Z, gets you 50% off for life. Or if you want to try it first, simply go to mailtag.io to start a completely free 14-day trial, no credit card required. What do you got to lose? Mailtag.io. Try it. You got nothing to lose except wondering if your emails have even been read. Mailtag.io. <laughs> The way we do business is advancing faster than ever before. Yet amongst the disruptions, there's one pillar that stays standing through it all. The power of a relationship. Relationships are at the core of everything. So how are today's organizations developing, nurturing, and leveraging them to drive success? Download the new research report on the state of relationship marketing and learn how your team can bridge the gaps between relationships and revenue. Download your free report at HeinzMarketing.com. That's H-E-I-N-Z Marketing.com. All right, let's pick it back up with Matt and his guest. Welcome back to Sales Pipeline Radio. I want to thank again our sponsor for this episode, uh, MailTag.io. If you are using Gmail and you want to have a very simple but effective tool to Track when your prospects are clicking and uh, accessing your email, and you want to be able to access that into your CRM and do that without a lot of bells and whistles, but do it very quickly, easily, and with a quick Chrome extension in Gmail. I want to thank the folks at MailTag.io. If you go to MailTag.io and you use the coupon code HEINZ, H-E-I-N-Z, you will get half off their product for life. 
So thanks to the and team there for the bottle of ketchup. It's and you get a bottle of ketchup. It's such a big deal. I will throw it in. Did you know Jeffrey, uh, speaking of Jeffrey Gittimer today, he's the king of sales, author of numerous books, including the new book, Truthful Living. This probably isn't going to surprise you now. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, I ran for student body treasurer of my elementary school, and my campaign slogan was 57 varieties of honesty. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so that's I have totally cool. I have absolutely no connection that I know of to the actual Heinz condiment company, but I've milked it for as much as I can throughout my career. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you something. They were one of the World's Fair sponsors in 1939. Mm-hmm. You should look up the brochure because you can <laughs> buy them for five or six bucks a pop. They're yeah. beautiful. Really? Oh, yeah. Cool. Just take a look. It might be something in there that you can use. That's fine. My wife is a teacher, and her maiden name is McDonald. And I remember you know, one of her students, when she told people she was getting married and what her name would be next year, they said, well, that makes sense. you got ketchup and hamburgers thrown in together. That's it. I don't know what your business card is, but if it doesn't look like the label on a ketchup bottle, something's drastically wrong with you. Well, it's funny you bring that up because inadvertently, and I, and I promise this was inadvertent, but like from the very beginning, our primary color on our website and our logo has been red. And cool. we redesigned our logo a, a few years ago. The intention was to make it sort of be kind of a fancy looking funnel. But like I have, I'm wearing it right now. I have a sweatshirt with our logo on it. And when I wear it on a plane, it looks like a squiggle of ketchup. It just, I mean, it just looks like ketchup. So people assume that it's from the ketchup people. And maybe that was oh, also cool. little. I don't know. Tell well, me, hey, I want to talk. is so recognizable. I appreciate you joining the show again today. And you know, we've been talking about the new book, Truthful Living: The First Writings of Napoleon Hill. You can find it on Amazon, and where all fine books are sold: hardcover, Kindle, audio book. And um, yep. I, I love it because I mean, like, this is what I love about what you've done here is you've taken. Some of this, some of these, this universal sort of lessons that, that we've had been passed down from Napoleon, some of the early work that he's done, uh, well mm-hmm. before books like Think and Grow Rich and others were published. You talk a little bit about where this has come from. And talk a little about some of the other stuff you're working on these days. Cause I know you've got other books in the, in the process. You're, you're constantly around the, around the world speaking. I've been checking out your new podcast. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's not new now. It's about a year old and we're at about, uh, I think this month we passed a hundred thousand downloads. Wow. Which is, Pretty, I know, it's pretty amazing. That's People pretty love the podcast that we call our listeners diehards. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, of course, have the little band, you know, the wristband that says sell or die. Yeah. And it defines sales. You sell or you're dead. There's no second yeah. place in sales. This is true. You didn't almost true. win a deal. You got to nothing. <laughs> and those are the, the elements. What has been your, your sort of approach to content diversity? Because, I mean, you've got a blog, you've got the podcast, you've got the book. I assume it's been fairly intentional to diversify the channels to get your message out. Yes. There is no one channel that brings me my business, although I will tell you a lot of it now comes from my social channels. Mm. You know, most people will brag about the fact that they got 1,800 connections on LinkedIn. I have 28,000 connections on LinkedIn and a hundred and some thousand followers on Twitter and five million views on my YouTube channel. The phone rings and someone will say, either I read the Little Red Book of Selling, or I read the Sales Bible, or I read the Gold Book of Yes Attitude, or I follow you on Twitter, I follow you on LinkedIn, I listen to your podcast. You can't just have one thing. You have to have enough diversity so that when someone Googles, hey, I need somebody who's an expert in sales, your name pops up. Right. And if it doesn't, it's because you haven't posted enough about your expertise. And I don't want to say this as a brag. I just want to say this as a fact. I've delivered about 2,500 corporate seminars over the last 23 years 
I've never made a phone call. Hmm. Everybody calls and wants to buy. People don't like to be sold, but they love to buy. I own that trademark phrase. And that's the challenge that you're facing in the marketplace. Who knows you? It's in sales, it's not who you know. In sales, it's who knows you. And that's the way it works in this. You know, you already you knew who I was before we ever talked on the phone. Absolutely. You, you probably have one of my books or two, and you probably violate my copyright law when you go out and do training. Fine. <laughs> yeah, I'll, ask you, I'll ask you a question about that. I think about some of the stuff that you've written. I mean, the Little Red Book is selling. I don't know very many sales leaders that don't have that in their library, right? And so Correct. once you once you've read something, and once once it's become it, you read something and you believe in it, it becomes part of who you are. You start using that language. How do you think about that from the idea of sort of maintaining control of your IP and your language with allowing it to become part of the nomenclature of sales, which really ends up driving more business to that to you, I assume. I trademark things, I copyright things, and still people take liberties. Mm -hmm. I can't control that. But if you look at any one of my books, you'll see that if there's a full-page quote, you'll also see my name at the bottom of it. So I don't let people simply copy my stuff without seeing my name. And very, it's very important, if you look up the little red book of selling, if you just open up the book, if they copy a page, it doesn't just say the title. It says the title and my name, every single page. And it's designed specifically that way because I know people are going to take liberties. I know somebody's going to say, here's how you network. Here's how you ask questions. Here's, here's how you close deals. Here's how you get leads. I'm okay with that as long as they say my name. And I've become known synonymously, literally, I'm the king of sales because I named myself. <laughs> Nobody else took the title, so the hell with it. I took it. And if someone thinks they're good enough, challenge me. I'll I'll step down. But this, he, these are the rules of challenge. Ready? Yep. We both do a seminar in front of a thousand people, same day. We each put fifty thousand bucks in cash at the end of the stage, and at the end of the hour, the audience votes, winner take all. And somebody else could become the king of sales. All they got to do is beat me. Right. Simple, right? Pretty simple. So have to leave his phone in. If they, if they want to take the, my challenge, then, you know, I'm happy to do it. I would love to do it. It's a good lesson that words are one thing. Words you put on a page are one thing, but it's, yeah. Yeah, it's your ability to execute oh, on yeah. that really the differentiator. we got just a couple more minutes here with Jeffrey Gittimer, the uh, king I'm of get, Let me give the secret. Let me give the secret. The do reason it. I'm as good as I am is I'm a student of what I do every day. And I love what I do every day. And if you don't love what you do, you can never rise to the to the greatness that you're hoping for. You well, have to have that. the passion. Absolutely. That's how ball players they go to the to the Hall of Fame or they go to the All Star Game. They want to be the best, and they're the most passionate about it. Jeffrey, I want to ask you a personal question as we run out of time here, and I'm going to ask it to you only because it's on in your bio. So I'm hoping that it's going to be all right. You say in your bio that you say, "My name is Jeffrey Gittimer. I'm a salesman." I'm a dad, I'm a college dropout, and I want to ask you about the middle one, because you talk about in your bio your, your, your daughters, and you say they taught you patience. I would love to hear how your approach to selling and whether patience has become a part of your sales approach in, from what your daughters have taught you as well. I have four daughters and four granddaughters. Wow. And a fiancé and two female dogs. I have all girls all the time. <laughs> and... You can't yell at girls because they're no. girls. You have to have the patience to say, my patience was tried as, a, as an early father. When the kids would do something wrong, I had two choices. I could yell at them or I could question them. And I chose questioning, and this is it was very simple. I go, wow, how did that happen? 
And they go, well, we did the da da da. I said, do you think that was the best thing you could have done? And they go, well, no. I said, what do you think you could have done that would have made the outcome a little different? And they go, well, we could have done this, this. I said, well, do you think you could do that next time? And they go, yeah. I said, well, let's do that. And done. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that we as parents have zero patience. You know, you have an iPhone or some reasonable facsimile that doesn't work as well. And you call coast to coast. You call me from Seattle to Charlotte. And the, the call takes three seconds to go through. And you're tapping the phone like, why is it taking so long? <laughs> like, no, no. How does it know? How does yeah. it know what to do? It's like a miracle. Okay. Yeah. We as a society have no patience. Domino's Pizza, we deliver it in 30 minutes or it's free. Everybody wants it now. Everybody wants it for nothing. And growing up in that society, you have to have the patience and the structure to be able to perform in that environment. Right. And I have learned it by being a dad. Love it. Hey, we are unfortunately out of time. They gave us, they only give us a half hour here, Jeff. Yeah, now we could, so uh, I could continue for long. I could keep going. We didn't really get back to good food in Seattle. But uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. For those of you listening, if you want to learn more about Jeffrey, you can check him out. We can check all of his books out, quite frankly, at Amazon. His new book, Truthful Living, The First Writings of Napoleon Hill. And to learn more about you, I mean, you've got tons of content. You're a podcast. Where should people check you out directly? Well, in the show notes, which I'm sure you're going to put in there, um, just put the Amazon link to Truthful Living or the link to Gittimer.com or GittimerLearningAcademy.com, and that, that, uh, that would make me the happiest guy on the planet. Last question for you, 2019 yeah. prediction for the Phillies. The Phillies will be able to hit the ball out of the infield on the fly <laughs> for the first half of the year like they normally do, and then they will die. Right. Uh, this year we made it all the way to September before we died. That was good. Yeah. Hey, as a, as a lifelong wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. But the Eagles, the Eagles oh. will kick the Seahawks' ass into the dirt where they belong because I hate the Seahawks and their coach. It's just for some reason I just don't like the guy. It was the only time I ever wanted New England to win a game, and they, <laughs> you lost on the dumbest call of a play in the history of sports. It's the first three goal, Marshawn Lynch, and you pass the ball. It's still too soon to talk about that. That's just, it's it's still painful. Yeah, I apologize, but <laughs> what's the dumbest play in the history of sports? Any argument with that? I well. Yes, in hindsight. Oh, Although, if it would have worked, we would have called them a genius. Oh, my God. It would Come on. Marshawn Lynch quit the team after that. He did. Well, did you, I don't know if you know. Now we're way over time. You, you know, the, uh, the Raiders did it to him earlier this season again. And you notice he's not playing again. They're idiots. Yeah, I know. Well, we could, I, could, I could give you many reasons why the Raiders are idiots, but we're out of time for that for sure. Hey, thanks very much for joining us on Sales Pipeline Radio. We will be back here next week at 1130 Pacific, 230 Eastern for more great guests. On behalf of Jeffrey and my great producer, Paul, thanks for joining us. This is Matt Hines Thank on you. Sales Pipeline Radio. You've been learning football and learning about sales pipelines right here. And the Funnel Radio Channel, brought to you by the good folks at Heinz Marketing. Welcome back to another episode of Rooted in Revenue, my weekly program right here on the Funnel Radio Channel with hosts Susan Finch and Lainey Sullivan. Rooted in Revenue has three quick 10 to 12 minute segments, each designed to solve a different revenue generating problem. Susan focuses on the marketing tips, while Laney focuses on events, with some tips from industry experts 
mixed in along the way. So let's stop getting mixed up and let's start getting rooted in revenue right now. Rooted in Revenue with your host today, Susan Finch. Susan Finch here with Rooted in Revenue on the Funnel Radio Network. And today I'm super excited because I think I'm super excited every time because I have cool guests. Today we have Alice Hyman of Alice Hyman LLC and Oren Broberg, President and CEO of Modus. And Alice, you just finished emceeing Sales 3.0, correct? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And you're preparing to launch Trade Show Makeover. Yes, I'm launching another company called Trade Show Makeover, and we're having a virtual summit November 13th. So take a look at tradeshowmakeover.com. Okay. But today, I know especially, Oren, I want to not pick your brains. I hate that term. That means giving expert advice for free. Not a big fan of picking brains. But I want to talk with you about buyer enablement. We hear so much about sales enablement and we have a great show on sales enablement on the network and stuff. But with you, I want to talk about buyer enablement and what you have learned about this. Can you bring us up to speed on that? Well, yeah. So well, buyer enablement is sort of the evolution of what we've been calling sales enablement in the last few years. Sales enablement was all about putting the right materials in the right in the hands of the salespeople at the right point in the sales cycle. It was also about preparing salespeople and sales enablement definitions and, and everything it was all about how to sell a customer. And sales enablement, I think, is an antiquated term because very quickly we've seen buyers really become come to the forefront of, you know, this is what it's all about. I mean, the salespeople need to look at how the buyers are responding to what they're doing. And so I've seen, particularly through working with Gartner and some of the more uh, the latest uh, kind of studies and surveys and thought leadership around how buyers are buying. When you do it, you know, the data is that in a complex B2B sales cycle, you have six to eight decision makers. And, uh, and they're looking at, you know, on the average of four and a half uh, different information sources and and what they, what do they really want from salespeople? What are vendors providing them? And the data really eye opening because it's showing that as vendors and I'm a vendor, we're not doing a real good job and and helping our buyers through their journey or what they have to do. There's many roles on the buying end. This whole idea of how difficult is it for buyers to actually buy what you're trying to sell when they're trying to buy maybe other things at the same time, is, is unfortunately rather revolutionary. But I think good salespeople have been doing it for a while. So that's, this buying enablement is, is really hot right now, and I think it's very relevant. Our top performers are, and our clients that are using this are really getting really good results. Yeah, Susan, I think that the whole thing here about sales enablement is if we're going to enable our salespeople, what we need to enable them to do is help the buyer. So that's the buyer enablement, right? It's like sales enablement should produce buyer enablement. Our sales people have to be able to enable the buyers. And if they can't, we're failing at sales enablement. We're failing in the whole pro sales process too, because we shouldn't be in front of anybody unless we can do that. Absolutely. And I think sellers today really don't know exactly what to do because we as companies, so not necessarily Orange company, but many companies out there are still training their salespeople in very selling methods. 
they're not selling to the modern buyer. They don't know how to do that. So the salespeople are walking around every day going, okay, I'm doing what you taught me to do. And it's not working. There are some outdated training procedures out there. And I'm I'm stunned every time I run across them. But they're prevalent, unfortunately. So that's why we have to take a look at what we're doing for sales enablement and flip that, as Orrin was saying, to buyer enablement and do a better job helping our buyers buy. I would even call it buyer engagement, too. Um, The role of the salesperson has shifted in the last two years, too. A good, you call it account executive today, is really not a salesperson or more of a information conduit to help these buyers with previewing of what the things are they need to be doing and how they can be, how the salesperson can help them preview and anticipate some of these barriers to them making a decision. I deal a lot with real estate folks, a lot of brokers and things across the country and a lot of B2C folks. And I don't think it's any different. It's almost a concierge mentality. The salesperson becomes the resource for all things. Where do you want to go for dinner? What's the best place? What should I avoid? What what do I need? What am I missing out? I only have 24 hours here. What do I do? I think it's the same type of thing. It's being, and, and it gets back to that being of service at your core, being a successful salesperson, remembering what you're there to do. Yeah, it's to make money. Okay, fine. It's to meet your quotas. Fine. But none of that's going to happen if you aren't of value and a trusted resource. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. In fact, Orrin and I were at the Gartner Conference recently, and we heard a lot of great conversation around, of course, serving your customer, but taking a lesson from what business to consumer selling is doing, you know, what's going on there. And remembering that people are people and they want and need your help. So what we have to do is figure out how to serve them. And I think, you know, Oren and I both, and I know you too, Susan, we've been selling a long, long time, but we've evolved, Oren, haven't we, from the days that we were, you know, you were back at Xerox, I was back at Miller-Hyman, you know, things have changed and we've evolved. Oh, does that bring back memories? I Sometimes I forget my past. And as soon as you said Xerox, I used to sell for Rico. Uh-oh. And, and so- Competitor. EX competitor. You know, we had Rico and Panasonic, but that old that was that old style to set the sales appointment to go in to close the deal. And it was all about me, 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 getting to what I needed yeah. and barely listening to what they needed just until I found something of mine that would fit in there that I could shove in their office. One thing about Modus, and, and I love this, your the whole mantra is sales enablement to engage and enable the buyer instead of paper. But I love the fact that you're giving salespeople the power in their hands very easily or virtually when it's at the distance to still be able to wow somebody and quickly respect their time by finding exactly what the person needs to see to solve their problem. That's right. And yeah, it's saving time is a big deal. Being professional, uh, projecting you know, the brand, of course, into the sales call. We, we work with marketing and sales, so we're trying to break down barriers. Yeah, that, that, that kind of thing we, we're doing. A topic that I've heard come up frequently, not frequently, but a lot recently, is do sales and marketing actually have to be that aligned? And some people are saying no. And I'm wondering, where do you fall in that camp still? I think it depends upon the, the, the company and the market. Uh, in, in the industry, I think if you're selling more of a commodity product with a, a lower annual contract value, that kind of thing, that, you know, you, you're, you're kind of getting into perhaps what we might say, you know, the, the SDR model, or you just want marketing just to generate leads, 
put them into the sales machine, have them go into the funnel and have the FDR close the deal or whatever they do. But there's a different model. You know, we exist in the world of uh, a complex sale, which is a you know longer sales cycle, higher ACV, and uh, marketing and sales have to be very closely aligned, not only you know, messaging, because you have, you know, customers, you know, prospective customers are going to go to your website. As soon as you contact them with either, say, you've got a, a cadence or some kind of sequence that's reaching people, say, in your universe, uh, borrowing a strategic selling term here, if you're trying to reach somebody in your universe, they're most likely going to go to your website first. If your messaging and that email or that message or whatever it was isn't consistent with what's on your website, and again, this is another another uh, industry statistic, the the odds are better than 50-50. They're just going to bounce and not ever come back. And so sales and marketing should be very closely aligned in messaging, you know, strategy, even at the tactical level. We talk about ABM, and then marketing has the resources to help personalize. So as marketing is at one level, you could say it's a, the message to many, one message to many, and then sales is about personalization. But I also think marketing can support sales with some of the new technologies and marketing automation, such as, you know, in our tool, you can have a trigger on these interactions between salesperson, salespeople, and their contacts on particular information that they're interested in. And marketing automation can go into a cadence or some kind of nurturing system from marketing automation to, you know, to support the two together. That's a 50 cent answer to a 25 cent question, but that's, that's how I feel. It, it, it depends. Yeah. You know, for me, I think with marketing and sales being aligned, it doesn't matter whether it's business to consumer, retail, business to business. If we don't send the same message out, how messy is that? I mean, Orton and I do work in the business to business complex world, but as a person who consumes goods, I want a retailer to have uh, the same message, right? I mean, you know, we all walk into some place and we want to know, oh, is this what it says it is, right? And then if a salesperson walks up to me in a retail shop, I want them to be on message. So I think this message of sales and marketing alignment works for everybody who's selling really, because I want that messaging to be clear. Otherwise the consumer, whether they're uh, buying for their company or buying for themselves gets confused. And when we confuse people, <laughs> they don't buy from us. Like Oren said, they just bounce. And so I love this um, idea of buyer enablement through sales enablement. Yes. We get the salespeople what they need in their hands when they need it online or off. That's what the Modus tool does so well. Right. We get it in their hands and then they can talk to the, the buyers, they can have a conversation, they can tell the stories and everything's right there at fingertips. So no matter which direction that buyer goes, that salesperson has it in their hand and it's ready. It's not fishing around for stuff. Oh, I'll have to call the office and see if they can get you that. I don't know where that deck is. Let me search for that. You know, it's none of that. It's marketing and sales aligned completely with the messaging, having the right content for that buyer at the right time in a platform that is seamless simple and easy to use. And the salespeople have it in their hot little hands when they need it. And it works even out in the field when you're not on the internet. So how cool is that? Right. That's how we do buyer enablement. Right. We get the stuff in people's hands through Modus. And that's why I just love working, of course, with Orin and his team. <laughs> Thanks for letting me do that plug. I, I was just, you know, so excited there. Um, but I do think that if we didn't have sales and marketing alignment, 
we cannot use that tool is useless. People buy tools like this all the time yes. and then they fail because the salespeople won't use them because marketing doesn't populate them with what sales needs and sales says we're not going to use it. Right. But right. in the end, if sales and marketing don't same language, the same messaging to get to that buyer, that buyer is going to walk away. So we just have to get that alignment and then give the enable the salespeople with the tools they need to have conversations with those buyers that make them understand the buying process and make it easy for them to buy from us. That makes sense. And, and don't forget, Alice, too, that you know our tool uh, will give marketing the analytics about what sales is using in the field. And so they get to see, uh, you know, there's a great case study from Toro using this with their dealer network and how they can see what media is being viewed, what's not being viewed. And that also gives them insight into what types of materials are produced in the future. Yeah, exactly. Because the salespeople are out in the field, right? They know what their buyers want. Again, sales and marketing alignment. The salespeople come back and say, this is what our buyers keep asking for. Can you please produce this? And that's a beautiful thing. It is. This is a good place though for a break. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be back in a minute. We have Alice Hyman and we have Oren Broberg. Susan Finch right here on Funnel Radio with Rooted in Revenue. Well, they were talking about one beautiful thing. Let's tell you about another. For those of you who are overwhelmed with your marketing and content to-do list, there is help on the way. You can let Susan Finch, our host, lighten your load. Creating strategic, thoughtful solutions to time shortage problems in marketing, connecting, building, sharing all the tasks that you dread. She can take your one piece of content and help you use it nine different ways while you keep doing what you do best, which is probably selling or designing or putting your business together. If you have the time, she can help you create your content engagement plan too. And you pick and choose what you want to do. It's a menu of options. Some of her favorite tasks for clients include things like video training libraries for the most common tasks you have. Those tasks that you're tired of training people to do over and over again. How about branding and logo packages? Everybody's interested in that. Or the one I'm always intrigued by, site thin out and update. When's the last time you took a weed whacker to your site or updated it with new information? She can also do social media posting. She can plan and produce your podcast. Her mantra is very simple. Create, inspire, advocate, ignite, and then repeat. If that's a formula you'd like to put into effect in your business, there's only one place to go to, SusanFinch.com. Check it out, Susan Finch. And having said that, let's get back to the uh, the master herself here, Susan Finch. Let's pick it up with the second half of her interview. We're back here. Susan Finch, your host today for Rooted in Revenue on Funnel Radio. And my guests today are Alice Hyman of Alice Hyman LLC and Oren Broberg, President and CEO of Modus. Folks, we've been having a wonderful conversation about buyer enablement, why it is the, the next little step from sales enablement because they really go hand in hand. And I want to continue this conversation, but I want to give a shout out to gomodus.com. You can learn more about their digital transformation that they offer all of their clients, put the power in the hands of the salespeople, to put the power in the buyer's hands. And they do it just with the most beautiful materials that your marketing team can create to support sales. And Alice Hyman, I know we, we all know alicehyman.com. 
But Trade Show Makeover, the virtual summit, is coming, and we will let you plug that right at the end. So welcome back, folks. Thank you. It's really fun having this conversation. I love talking about sales, and I know Oren does too. I want to take this to the next step, though. We've talked about enabling the salespeople and the buyers as an executive at a company, whether it's the CMO, the CEO, the CFO, or the whole team of them. What can they do to ensure that their sales force and marketing teams are armed with all of these wonderful tools. What do they need to consider before making a decision that Modus or something else out there is the solution? What are some of the questions they should be asking? I think they should be asking about the, the moments of truth. Uh, and again, the, and on the, from the buyer's perspective and these interactions between salespeople and, and their customers. I think we, we do focus groups, of course, with our clients and their sales organization. We really can uncover, you know, the complexities of the sales and what role content or information plays in providing this to the, the customer, what role it plays and, and what point in the buyer's journey, if you will. And then you work backwards and then you see you apply technology to support that. You don't go with technology first. Of course, you look at, you know, what do we need to, to help the buyer move through their process? make it easier for them and break down their own barriers. And so it, there may be things, it's not just about content, it could be tools. Also that to be, you know, what, what tools are available on our website? Is a website as a resource to help that journey? So there's questions about that that's specific to them. And then you look at how technology can support it. Yeah, I like what Oren said about process first before technology, because what I have seen so many times, and I know both of you have seen it too, we buy tools, and then our salespeople won't use them, right? Right. So let's not do that. Let's map the process, whatever process it is where, you know, between sales and marketing, if it's, you know, mapping the buyer's journey, if it's other pieces of sales enablement, let's map it out on a whiteboard first or use some kind of mapping tool on the internet, get it all designed, and then look at the tools and say, which tool will support what we're trying to do? And I always recommend talking to a few vendors. I mean, I do love the Modus tool. It is so simple and easy to use. And that's one of the things I love about it. But that doesn't mean it works for everybody who's trying to enable their sales team. There are many different tools out there and we've got to be highly selective and we've got to get all, all the people that are in, involved in this decision at our companies to consensus because once they choose that, now they have the big job of actually getting the users to use it. And I would say that's the biggest problem with choosing any software. So we're trying to enable our sales team so they can enable the buyers, right? But then we give them this beautiful tool and we have no engagement. All right. That's just not going to work. So that's our job. We have to choose wisely, map it first, choose wisely, get everybody bought in, and then actually get the users, the salespeople to start using it. And so you need a rollout plan for that. You can't just hope it's going to work. Oh, they'll be so excited. We got them a new tool. Well, we know how that works. Right. To them, new tool means more work. We always talk about well, who our ideal customer is, who who fits. And Orin, you have a wonderful list of clients. I mean, some big people, Some you've helped so many. Who is not your client? Who is not our target client, you mean? Who is not an industry? Yeah. Well, I would say for us, because we are a, probably say, mobile first kind of application, I would say inside sales, somebody with 
uh, a big call center, these kinds of things are not our kinds of clients. It used to say, we used to say retail, but now we have a, a kiosk uh, capability. So when you talk about dealer distributors, we get into retail now. That's kind of fun. That's a new area for us. But inside sales and in specific industries, you know, we, we are not all things to all industries. And we know that over time, particularly in an our type of sales asset management platform, uh, our competitors have you know, sort of gravitated into, you know, their strong industries. And so I would say tech and finance are not our strong in, uh, suit. On the other hand, we work very well with MedDevice Health Services. Yes. So health insurance, you know, like United Health is a large client of ours. And uh, our mobile platform works very well for what they need. Uh, and, of course, manufacturing is our bread and butter. We have evolved our platform to be optimized for large global manufacturing enterprises with complex dealer-distributor networks. So we, we handle multiple languages and regional analytics for sales VPs and regional managers. That thing to help them manage their, their dealer and distributor kind of activity through our analytics. And, and that's sort of unique to us because Caterpillar was one of our first major clients. And so we optimize our platform for them. And so lo and behold, we get a lot of clients like Caterpillar. Same with MedDevice. We tend to stick to our strong suit because our clients are looking for, you know, say, prospective clients want to know what other companies like them are doing and what kind of experience we have uh, with their industry and how well do we know their business. And so that that's helping us. Does that answer your question? Oh, definitely. And I think that's one of the most important things is we're talking about the C-level people. They need to know what's going to fit their target audience. They're, and whenever I hear a company, I get scared of it when you ask anybody or a prospective client, well, who's your target? Well, we'll anybody like, Oh, this isn't good because you can't serve everybody and you can't serve your best clients best if you're focusing on the splatter shot method. So I always admire and respect anybody that can say who their customer is not, who their ideal client Mm -hmm. is and who they best serve. It's to me, it says that you will serve, you know, where you know you're strong you will continue to evolve, continue to serve, continue to improve. That would be comforting to me as Caterpillar and some of those other companies that you serve in HealthNet to know they, they've got it. Modus will just keep going. They'll just keep giving me better stuff over and over. And that's reassuring. So I respect that very much about you and your company. Thank you. Folks, we are actually out of time. 25 minutes goes fast. <laughs> it does. How can, Alice, how can, where do you want to drive everybody today? Well, since I'm launching this new company, now I still have Alice Hyman LLC and do all the wonderful things we, we do for companies to help uh, rapidly growing companies increase their sales quickly and grow their sales organizations. But we are launching Trade Show Makeover which is all about how you can turn the leads you get at trade shows into deals. And so that's tradeshowmakeover.com. We're starting with a three-day virtual summit on November 13th, and it goes through the 15th. So you can watch anything that's of interest to you or watch all of it. But I do want to give a shout out to Modus again, because they are one of our main sponsors. Thank you, Oren, for sponsoring us. I really appreciated that. Uh, two speakers from Modus will be talking about ways that you can turn leads into deals. And I just think that that's what everybody wants to do. We spend so much money on trade shows. We've got to start producing more out of them and get that revenue. That's what we're going to talk about. And uh, you'll enjoy it. So please go to tradeshowmakeover.com and you'll be able to sign up. And thank you for letting me plug my virtual 
virtual summit. Well, thank you for being a guest today. Oren, what do you want to tell them? Well, I'd say we're really excited about applying artificial intelligence to our platform in a way that is transparent to the user to make it more intuitive for the salespeople using our app in their hands, but as well as the marketing people who are, are using it and loading it. So there's, there's ways we can use artificial intelligence to save time on repetitive tasks, uh, but also to curate you know, content and suggesting things that will be helpful to salespeople. And so we're in the process of testing uh, what we call a virtual assistant, which is a, a new part of our core platform. Uh, preliminary reports is very exciting. You know, I'm, I'm obsessing over that because I, I could just see the, the real benefit. Imagine never having to, to interface with CRM again, right? for the salespeople. We integrate with Salesforce. And so, you know, CRM is one of the most hated, you know, applications since it was invented by salespeople and sales managers alike. So we're trying to, to make that much more seamless and and um, productive for the salespeople. Let them do what they like to do. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So definitely go, gomodus.com is where you can find out more. And I do want to mention one thing real quick. I know we're out of time that Modus also has a lead capture feature that can be used at trade shows and anywhere you are in the field. So that we're easy. Yep. Salespeople hate typing in data. This uh, tool allows them to capture the information. It goes straight to the CRM and it makes it fast and easy for them to be able to then email to their clients and communicate with them. So another thing that, that I love um, that you can use with the <laughs> You are a fan. <laughs> I am a fan. Yep. Thank you so much. This has been Susan Finch, your host for Rooted in Revenue on the Radio Network. Never miss an episode. Check out rootedinrevenue.com and subscribe on the site to get weekly updates of when new episodes come out. Or find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio. We want to be where you are, so go subscribe. We'll get you all the information you need to do your best with marketing of events and your online presence. You've been listening to another episode of Rev Rooted in Revenue right here on the Funnel Radio Channel for at-work listeners like you. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another episode of WVU Marketing Communications Today. Coming to you live from the campus of West Virginia University, this is a syndicated show that sits squarely at the intersection of data-driven decision-making and marketing practice. With the man with the, the golden voice and the magic touch, Matthew Cummings. <laughs> hey, Matthew. <laughs> I wish. Is that on my business card? Well, that's it. That's why I read it right off of there. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. I appreciate that, Paul. It's good to be back hosting another episode of Marketing Communications Today from West Virginia University. We have another good one on tap this afternoon. Brands in Motion, How to Evolve Using a Value and Data-Driven Approach. Over the next 20 minutes, you'll learn how to cultivate a unique brand identity in this modern landscape. Our guest today, Dan Hill, CEO of Hill Impact, will share valuable tips to modernize branding strategies using data-driven insights without losing sight of organizational values and heart. 
Dan has been trusted by world leaders, CEOs, and celebrities to build, defend, and yes, even sometimes repair brands. He's a leading expert on brand positioning and reputation and has appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, Los Angeles Times, and Washington Post, as well as shows such as NBC's Today, PBS's NewsHour, and NPR's All Things Considered. And now, Dan, you can add WVU Marketing Communications today to your bio as well, right? Dan is also a contributor to Newsweek and The Daily Beast. With more than 25 years advising public and private sector leaders across the world, Dan is known as a true fixer, routinely navigating complex systems and challenges to deliver positive outcomes against seemingly impossible odds. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm going to put the WVU at the top since I'm a big uh, fan of the Mountaineers. All right. Sounds good. It's a good season to be following the Mountaineers for sure. Hey, I want to start by uh, kind of level setting here and, and asking, you know, how you define brand. I know this is a pretty elementary question, right? But even for those of us who have been in the industry for a while, I think there's a there's different ways to define the concept of brand. So what is brand and, and what isn't a brand? Let's define that up front. Sure. Well, to me, a brand is your relationship with your most direct stakeholders. And I call it a relationship because it's not just how you present yourself to customers or to your stakeholders, um, but it's how they see you. And, it, and to mm-hmm. me, that gets lost as reputation sometimes. But to me, reputation is a broader issue but brand is really the relationship that an entity has with its core um, stakeholder that's a good definition speaking of that relationship uh, what is brands in motion that was uh, the title of our podcast today and it's a concept that you've developed so what is brands in motion in my years of working with different brands one of the things i've seen time and time again and i've even participated in and you probably have two are these great branding exercises that take right. months, sometimes years to get everything perfect because this is a brand that's going to last for the next 20 years or next 10 years. And it becomes a shiny object on a hill that we have to dust off every now and then and protect. <laughs> and there's no fluidity to it. And to me, a brand in motion is, is really going back to that relationship con- concept. If you think right. about marriages, for example. How many times have you heard a couple who's going through hard times, maybe 10 years into their relationship, say, the man I married isn't the same today, or the woman I used to travel with and who liked to go out and eat wants to stay home? Well, people change. Organizations change. And what a brand emotion is, is a brand that from the very beginning sets itself to be fluid and be able to adjust to times and really make that relationship one that has give and take. That's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, speaking of that, how did you come up with this with this concept? How is it different than that conventional view on brands that you described earlier? I kind of backed into it. I backed into it through my crisis work, actually. Uh, hmm. So much of my uh, career has been helping organizations that are in the middle of a very high profile issue. And in doing so, some of the brand development things that happened at the front end of the process 
are what created an issue to begin with. And so we have to go back and fix those. And it just kept coming over, you know, 20 years over and over. I was thinking if this brand were more nimble, if this brand had paid more attention to its relationships, we wouldn't be facing this crisis. And so over time in doing crisis work, the biggest thing I want to do is help organizations avoid a crisis. And I think Mm -hmm. it starts actually with how you brand yourself. So how does Brands in Motion then manifest itself in the work that you're doing with clients or even for you personally? Well, I I mean, for me and for my firm and how I position myself, I, I think the problem with the concept, if there is one, is if people think that it doesn't have to be tethered in any kind of core values. And I think that's really, if there is anything that's foundational, it Mm -hmm. has to be around values. That's how you drive a culture. That's how you get buying. For me, it's just making sure that, that the values are consistent and that we have that built in ability to listen to our stakeholders, our customers, our clients, and, adjust as we go. And it's, it manifests itself in our crisis prevention work because we get very into the weeds about who you are, what your identity is, what your relationship is with your main stakeholders. And when most people are looking at policies and procedures and crisis response plans, we're getting into the, you know, the real details about who you are. We have some time here before the break, and I want to uh, go back to two things that you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned finding the brand value and also listening. Can you give us some practical advice on how best to do that? Well, let's take social media, for example. Mm-hmm. So many people in our profession are all about this as a tactic to transmit, but too little are we talking about it as a tool for listening. And mm-hmm. If you think about a, a, a big manufacturing company and what the kinds of things they may be, let's say an automaker, communicating right. through social, think about all the things they can be hearing. They can detect a problem with a particular car, you know, perhaps months before it becomes public. Or they may be able to hear about an issue with their workforce. Maybe they're organizing to go on strike. And so it's making sure that every tool you have that's meant to be transmitting information is also a tool to be receiving information. In fact, it should even be more so. Just like any relationship, listening and being sure that you actually hear what the other party's saying is, is fundamental to making it work. That's a good point. What about values? You know, brands are always saying we, we need to find out what we stand for and what our values are. Uh, so that's a great, that's great advice for listening and listening to your customers. But how do you get buy-in for, for the brand values and, and identify exactly what those are? Well, I think you have to convince people. Are you talking about buy-in from the internally, like with employees, or are you talking about buy-in with the customer? I guess both are important, right? I think it does start internally. And I think, Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, some of the exercises that we go through to develop these have been almost become caricatures and, and they're considered light and fluffy because what the history is, is that people go through these, uh, mission and value type exercises and then they don't live by them. 
the first thing you have to do is convince people that this is a, actually a meaningful activity that the organization is going to stand behind and empower, have some kind of way to empower the people in the organization to really embrace it and to live it and to make it a part of their workplace culture and to hold each other accountable to that. If you don't have that, if you don't have the internal, you're never going to convince external stakeholders that it's real. So start inside first and then work inside out. And, and to me, with the external, yes, you're right. And, and to the external stakeholders, you don't typically talk. I prefer an organization brand that shows its values through its actions as opposed mm-hmm. to telling you what they are. And so internally, you may be talking very specifically. We're a learning organization. We're an organization that believes in continuous improvement. Whatever those things may be, your actions are going to be what shows that value to your stakeholders. Sure. Now, back to this concept of a brand in motion. And speaking of that motion, what happens when brands overreach or or creep on their mission or values? That's a great question. That's where we're seeing a lot of the crises that we end up working on is that it's enticing out there. Sometimes in this very fast-paced world, you might see an opportunity and reach beyond what you were chartered to do if you're a nonprofit or what you developed your company to do. Mm-hmm. And by reaching, you can totally upset the entire, it's like riding a bicycle and seeing <laughs> something and deciding to reach for it. And then all of a sudden you've, you know, had a massive, uh, you've got all kinds of um, scrapes up your life. What is that called? When you have a, Road rash. Yeah, road rash. Right, right, sure. Uh, the same thing happens to brands when they reach outside of that. It's just making sure that opportunities get run through a system to make sure they fit with where you are. It doesn't mean that you don't adjust to go pursue that, but you got to make sure the foundation is ready for it. And that takes time. Yeah, building that, that strong foundation. How does, and you mentioned this earlier, that uh, you, you arrived at this concept through your work really through uh, crises. Um, how does motion then make a brand less vulnerable to a major crisis or, or guide responses maybe when one happens? One of the things I've learned, I, I, I developed this thing called the crisis score a while back. It's been really 10 years of work to get to where it is. And I can take a look at any crisis in an organization and give you an assessment of how big of a problem it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And in, it's about 30 different factors that go into that. And one of the things that I noticed was when people have a certain expectation for a brand, it creates an anomaly. And so what we've been told in strategic communications and PR for so years, so many years is that there's this halo effect that mm-hmm. if you're a great brand and people love you, then you can absorb a crisis. Well, I started running simulations through the score and noticed something. That's not always true, and I'll give you the example. General Motors had a crisis with its uh, ignition switch. Mm -hmm. Toyota had a crisis over its acceleration. Toyota at the time was the number one brand in safety, reliability, customer satisfaction, and approaching number one in sales in the U.S. Wow. GM was very far from that. They were at the bottom of the list in terms of customer satisfaction, safety, every other metric. 
So you would think that the Toyota could have absorbed that crisis and GM would have suffered dramatically, but it was quite the opposite. You know, GM sales actually went up during that crisis. Toyota's plummeted, their stock plummeted, and it took them a long time to recover. And the real interesting thing is that the GM crisis was far more damaging in terms of loss of life and actual impact than the Toyota one. And so what it got me thinking is that as a brand, when you set this expectation that you have to have some way to have a conversation about how you absorb these things, how you learn from them. And so a brand emotion is one that is continually learning. It's constantly looking for best practices. It's willing to admit when it does something or falls short. And it Mm -hmm. has a process in place to fix those things in real time without having to go through massive rebranding. I can't stand, and I hate saying this, they used to be a client years ago, but the Wells Fargo rebrand of saying that they're a new entity as of this date. Yeah, reestablished um, in 2018, right? Yeah, that's not a brand emotion. No brand emotion should have to go through a massive uh, rebrand because they are keeping up, they're adjusting, they're nimble, and they, they're doing these things more real time. Yeah. So never never let a, a good crisis go to waste, right? We're going to take a quick break now. So hold that thought, if you will. We're going to come back, talk a little bit more about how data plays into brands in motion and also how to become a brand leader rather than a brand manager. We'll be right back. And, you know, if you're not a data geek, if you're not a uh, speaker of data here, there is a way to solve that. West Virginia University has an online data marketing communications program. It's first of its kind. It's a graduate program, and it's all online. Focuses on strategic thinking, critical problem solving, and informed decision making. The data marketing communications program prepares you for your career by learning the basic innovative tactics like those we talk about each and every show here from award-winning faculty and experts in the field like today's guests. You can learn more about this interesting, innovative data marketing communications program at dmc.wvu.edu. A lot of letters that simply suggest data marketing communications at West Virginia University. dmc.wvu.edu. All right. Back for some more uh, insights and innovative thinking here from our, our guests, sir. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. Dan, right before the break, I had uh, responded to you and saying, uh, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? And, and, and you had a follow-up there, and I apologize for cutting you off, and we had to go to the break. So uh, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say that yeah, a crisis defines a brand, whether it's an individual or an organization, and it can define it. It can even define it positively. And mm-hmm. I think we live in a pretty forgiving world. People expect there to be mistakes, and it's how you own those. And I think a, a brand emotion is able to see that and doesn't set itself up for the fall by over-promising and not being able to meet those expectations. Again, it comes back to that relationship, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that all the time to my son. Uh, it's how you respond that's really important. I want to uh, pivot a little bit and head over to uh, data and talk about data and what type of data should communicators and leadership be using to make decisions uh, for brands that are in motion. 
So I think one of the criticisms I've had about communicators more than marketers uh, in the PR profession is that they are too far away from the bottom line. They mm. don't understand the P&L. They don't understand what really moves a CEO and investors. And mm -hmm. it's really the data that matters to the company in terms of its performance, its margins, if we're talking um, in the corporate space. That's the kind of data that I think communi communicators and people who work in marketing communications need to be looking for metrics that actually speak to leadership. I've never right. met a CEO who cared about the number of followers on Twitter or the number of impressions that they got. What they care about is the bottom line. And it's tying yourself to those bigger objectives and finding ways to provide value inside the company that mm -hmm. are demonstrative. That's really the metrics that and, and then it's the listening part. The so much of the data comes from various stakeholders. It can, mm -hmm. we focus so much on media monitoring and social monitoring, but what about analysts and what about think tanks and what about political stakeholders? And it's just making sure that you have a more well-rounded view. And the most important stakeholder that we're not collecting data on are, are internal ones, employees. They have the most to say, the most insight, and yet they're most often ignored. You know, I want to stay on this topic for a bit. I think it's one that's really important, especially when working with uh, with students uh, in our program, is connecting the dots between what that CEO cares about in terms of margins, P&L, and the value of the brand. Do you have any advice for those of us that, that struggle to make that connection and say, you know, the investments in our brand and what we're doing here and keeping this brand in motion do contribute to that bottom line? I think first it's knowing the vocabulary and understanding what really matters to them. And I would encourage students to listen to today. You can listen into analyst calls, quarterly earnings calls uh, that companies have with investors and yeah. just hearing what matters to the investor community and what they're communicating helps you connect those dots. That's really the space that you need to be operating in if you want to be considered a valuable part of the team. One of the things I've said over the years to students is that if you look at the list of Fortune 500 companies, how many of the CEOs come from a PR background? Hmm. And to date, I haven't found one. But you can find... <laughs> There's no hope for me is what you're saying, right? <laughs> I mean, but I think that can change if our young communicators can understand the importance of getting much closer to the corporate objectives and understanding what makes the company work and not work. Right. And that just intuitively will make them start understanding how to communicate better internally and what to tie their metrics to. Mm. You know, when you and I were talking about today's episode, I remember you, you said that you really dislike the phrase brand management. Why is that? It's the same reason I don't like crisis management is because it's, it, to me, it's about leadership. And the skill set you need to manage something is very different than the skill set you need to lead. And I think in both of those instances, whether it's a crisis or what you're doing with your brand, you need to be on your front foot. You need to be making decisions. You need to be decisive. You need to convey confidence. 
I love collaboration. I love mm-hmm. those kinds of, inv- but there's a time for you to say, this is who we are and say it with confidence and not, and maybe the development was collaborative, but once you get there, it's really having that kind of leadership posture that builds confidence with all stakeholders, including the external ones. So there are things you have to do as a leader that require management. But to me, if you really want to have an effective brand, you got to think through the lens of a leader. So managing is uh, keeping the lid on it, but leading is really putting it in motion. That's what I believe. Who do you feel, Dan, is doing this well today? What are good examples of brands that are in motion? I mean, Netflix is an interesting Mm -hmm. one. I mean, this is a company that has been disruptive multiple times. They seem to have a really good relationship with their customers and with the most important stakeholders. They listen. Their performance is one that's been really talked about by the investment community and finance world. And so the whether it's going to be a long-term success or not still remains to be seen, but they, they really do stay on top of things. They reinvent themselves, but it's, it's seamless. I don't think of the Netflix that I watch that has original content as the mm-hmm. same Netflix that totally put Blockbuster out of business, but it all connects and it all right. makes sense. And you may haven't had to go through massive rebrandings. CVS is another kind of interesting brand and some of the things they're doing from an innovation standpoint and hmm. and really how they're trying to adjust themselves to be more community-oriented. And some of the decisions they've made, like taking cigarettes off the shelf, yeah. I think have shown kind of that brand in motion, willing to take a risk, but to only double down on who they are. That's that leadership rather than, than the management uh, really at work. I want to end here just asking for some parting advice. Um, what would you leave our listeners with? Maybe those who are in a maybe in a brand management role now and really want to get that brand in motion and shift more toward uh, brand leadership. What parting advice do you have? Some of it I've said, but getting back to what really the organizational fundamental objectives are and tying your day-to-day work to measurable and demonstrative sales Mm -hmm. or fundraising or performance. And then also just making sure that that you're not chasing whatever the most interesting or creative things are without taking into account what the true underlying purpose are. And I think we get excited about new platforms and new outlets and new ways Mm -hmm. to communicate. But we get too excited about using the tactic and we don't ever bring it back to the strategy. And that would be my kind of parting advice. Mm, That's great advice. Good insights here, Dan. Thank you so much for spending uh, some time with us today. And I want to thank you for listening to WVU Marketing Communications today from all of us here at the IMC and DMC program at West Virginia University. I hope you found today's episode as informative as I have. And until next time, take care. You've been listening to WVU Marketing Communications today, brought to you live from West Virginia University bi-weekly program that sits at the intersection of data-driven decision-making and marketing practice, only on the Funnel Radio Network, for at-work listeners like you.
That wraps it up for November 8th, 2018. Thank you for joining us on the Funnel Radio channel.